Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is... I have a hard time with this last name sometimes. Hold on. <laughs> How do you pronounce Raghunathan? Here's a little video. You need 55-second video to tell me that? What? All right, skip ahead. Here. Hi, everyone. Greetings on this channel. Now I will talk about how to pronounce this word. So let's get right to the end. <laughs> Ragunathan. 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 I will repeat more slowly. <laughs> I love that. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Raj Ragunathan a professor of marketing at the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Whew, that's a mouthful. He is also the author of If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? And he is the author behind one of the most popular, massively open online courses ever created, a course on Coursera called A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment that has been participated in by more than 250,000 students. It's available to you online at no cost right now. Raj explains consumption behavior through themes from psychology, behavioral science, decision theory, and marketing. He talks to the smart and successful. That's who he's writing for. People who have already accomplished a lot. People who are intelligent, but maybe don't yet experience the level of happiness that they want, or they don't experience it as easily and as often as they'd like. We go deep on the topic of gratitude. Something that can be trite, feel like something on a Hallmark card, but Raj gets into the how and why it works, why it matters, and how we can use it more effectively. We also talk a little bit about a Hindu concept called Leela, the concept of life as a cosmic play. Raj talks about leading a healthy lifestyle as the foundation for happiness. In the final part of the interview, he talks a little bit about procrastination, how to overcome it, and how to overcome inertia that might keep you stuck. So I think you'll find something that you can implement into your life and your creative endeavors in this wide-ranging conversation with Raj Raghunathan. Rag, Raj Raghunathan. Raj, welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Honor to be here. So, Raj, what's life about? <laughs> okay, that's a very broad question. And I don't know if I have the answer to it, but I do think that you stop thinking about that question in a way that disturbs you if uh, you find out what your purpose in life is. Okay, in a sense... What you're asking me is what's the purpose of life? And I don't know what that is, but you find your purpose in life. And uh, the way to find that out is to um, have experiences that uh, this uh, researcher called uh, Sheikhs and Mihai called flow states, flow experiences, where you get so immersed in an activity that you forget, um, you lose track of time and perhaps even forget yourself, lose the sense of uh, self-consciousness. If you know your purpose in life, then you stop asking that question in a way that's frenzied and feverish and desperate. 
but you might ask the question out of curiosity, perhaps. Yeah. I've lived a lot of years frenzied and fevered and desperate, and I think some people might tell you that I still do. <laughs> not, it's not totally up to me, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You, you don't look it uh, right now. but Well, thank you. When you meet someone, and I realize this question, the answer to this question might change depending on context, situation to situation, who you meet, where you are, whether you're speaking or not. But when people ask who you are and what you do, how do you like to answer that question? So I go with what I might call a conventional answer, um, which is I just tell them my name. uh, I tell them my uh, designation or position at the university where I'm a professor and uh, which department I belong to. Um, So as you know, I uh, am in the marketing department, but I teach a class on happiness. I don't quite get into that, you know, because that then raises a whole new set of questions. What really? I'm in business school teaching happiness. How come? And so on. So I just give them a conventional answer. But it's interesting that you asked me this question because in the back of my mind, almost always when I ask this question of somebody and when somebody asks me this question, there is this element of, you know, who am I really? You know, I mean, other than this idea of having an identity with a name, with a a certain role to play, uh, who am I kind of a thing. So I don't let that distract me too much because I'm assuming that they're coming at it from a conventional Angle and I just give them the conventional answer. So if you were ever in a situation where you might share with someone an unconventional answer to that question, what might that look like? Yeah, so that's something that I I don't have a whole lot of clarity on. I just think that um, this fact that there is anything at all and that we have such a thing as life and that we are floating around on this piece of rock around a big ball of fire and that we don't kind of you know, freak out, well, maybe freak out is the wrong word, but I mean, you know, just step back and say, what the hell is going on? I mean, why are we <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, the fact that we don't seem to get caught up in that uh, as often I, as I think we should is sometimes a little bit surprising to me that, you know, people just go about their life and, you know, I find myself also getting caught up in, you know, just, just regular life. Um, so if you were to ask me uh, from that perspective of, you know, deep down, or, you know, when you step back from your roles, what is the answer to the question of who am I or who are you? Um, how would you introduce yourself, etc.? Then I would say that right now, I would say that my preferred position, although I don't have any proof for it, you know, I, I feel a little tacky referring to this word called consciousness. But, <laughs> you know, I, I'll still say it. But uh, it seems that what I feel quite confident about is that um, I can see things, I can perceive things. Uh, I, it seems that this thing called I exists, this ability to perceive, etc. obviously assumes that there is something that is able to perceive and observe. So that thing seems to exist. And I am also somehow uh, right now wedded, not wedded, but I mean, I'm, I, I think I believe that uh, this thing that is perceiving, I'm calling that thing consciousness is, is, uh, something that has been around and is not going to die when this body dies. And so there's going to be a kind of a continuation of uh, this deep down reality of who I am. And, um, you know, how I got to believing this, I can talk about it later, but uh, that's what I would say. I am. You know, that uh, I'm consciousness, so are you. And we're all, you know, in existence and we've always been and we always will be. But just temporarily, we have occupied this vessel called the body and uh, see things in this narrow, limited way. And uh, once this body perishes and you die, quote unquote, die, 
um, that that's when is one of the moments of truth when you realize that you are consciousness that always existed that will continue to exist and but then might come another cycle of birth and and so on so in a sense i guess i would reveal that i'm a subscriber to uh, reincarnation yeah. to that answer i share i think i share your perspective as i hear you articulate it and um part of what i love about your book um if you're so smart why aren't you happy which i want to ask you about in just a moment is knowing that that's kind of the worldview that under that underpins you know what you share i love wicked smart people <laughs> and when we met i had the sense that you were one and now reading your book and seeing not only are you incredibly intelligent i believe but also you're very uh, studious you're very researched in looking at this topic of happiness and you know one of the questions i thought to ask is you know why did the world need another book on happiness which maybe i'll ask you that but before i even go there let me just ask you if you will will you share this book why like who did you write it for and what did you want it to do for them uh to the question who did i write it for uh i would say that i wrote it for people who are um the kinds of people that um i hang around with because of my role because of my job um as i mentioned i'm a professor in the marketing department in a business school so i'm surrounded by very smart very ambitious people who are already successful many of them are bound for a lot of success like my mba students and undergrads um but i also know that they're probably not going to be as happy as they think um they're going to be uh, given what they're going to achieve i think their assumption is that yeah if i do all these things then i'm going to surely be very happy but i know that that's probably not what's going to happen they're going to um be just as happy as the average person maybe even somewhat unhappy because um they've acquired a bunch of traits and world views and aspirations that undercut their happiness and so that's whom the book is written for how do you know that like i mean is this personal experience is this other research how could you be so sure and then be confident that this book could help address and resolve that issue okay so uh i thought your your question was how can i be so confident that they are headed for not so much happiness yeah 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 that's right so that part of it um actually there's quite a bit of research uh on you know in the area of happiness on the relationship between life's external circumstances like the amount of money you make and fame and power and wealth and success and um you know uh, who you marry and and so on and uh, your happiness levels and it turns out that all that together perhaps accounts for about 10 maybe 15% of your happiness okay um so uh it's not a big amount and yet if you look at people and if they're unhappy and if you ask them okay so what are you going to do most of them pin their hopes on external circumstances and trying to improve those circumstances get a better job or get more money or get more famous or whatever and they really think that that's going to make them happy and there are reasons we can get into why those are not sustainable sources of happiness a little bit later on maybe but the second part of your question is you know why am i so confident that my book is going to help them tell you the truth <laughs> when i wrote the book i'm i was i wasn't so confident um because you know uh, a you have to first be conceptually clear about the things that the research has documented as improving people's happiness levels and you got to kind of believe that and that takes a lot of work um you know it's a new field positive psychology is, is a new field and so we're still kind of replicating a lot of the results and uh who knows if uh, many of these results are still going to hold maybe 50 years from now it looks like they might and and they will but there is that element of it and then comes the tougher part which is that even if conceptually all these things that we know or we are finding lead uh, increases your happiness 
um, even if conceptually uh, we have confidence in them, people actually have to use them and apply them. And we know that, you know, often that's where uh, we have a lot of failings. You know, if out of 100 people who make a New Year's Eve resolution, maybe about 15% stick with it, right? So even if you know what to do, will you have the ability to actually do it, right? So when I wrote it, it was more that I wanted to put these ideas out there for this group of people that in a sense, the happiness, um, you know, literature uh, tends to ignore in the sense that we tend to think that, okay, let's address the um, depression of the really sad people, or let's address the kind of unhappiness of really poor people. And of course, that's very, very important, right? Uh, But, um, you know, nobody really talks about the unhappiness of really rich and famous people, because they think that they already have all these things, they're probably happy. So why should they be even even happier, right? So I felt that this group, uh, the happiness of this group was important to me. And so I wanted to kind of um, uh, write the book to them. I think you refer to this group as the SNS, the smart and successful. Yes. Right. Yeah. Which, um, you know, it makes me think about something a friend of mine talked to me about. Um, she was actually the first guest on my podcast, a really beautiful uh, spirit named Lynn Twist, who wrote a book, The Soul of Money. Mm. And she shared in this book was the the first time I, I heard this and she since talked with me more about it, but she talked about when she was young going to Calcutta to find Mother Teresa and wanting to serve with her there. And she, she finally, you know, she waited her turn and she met Mother Teresa and Mother Teresa actually, you know, she listened to her story and heard why, what her motives were and, and all this. And Mother Teresa actually said, you know, go home to the United States where the rich have their own form of poverty. But it's a spiritual poverty and your work is there. And so it's like, who's going to turn down a directive from Mother Teresa, right? And she spent this, her lifetime now doing that as a philanthropist and a, and a teacher and a humanitarian. And, and so what, one of the things that I like about your book is, you know, I think you're right that the, the wealthy have their own form of suffering. But it's not – my experience is it's not the easiest thing to talk about because it's like cry me a freaking river, this kind of thing. But as you point out, once we have uh, our basic needs met, after that, you know, a corresponding increase in wealth or status does not bring a corresponding increase in happiness. And, and your book starts to open up some things that are truly useful. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, and, you know, it's done uh, quite well. It's been translated into 13 languages and – um, now that the book has been out for a couple of years um, and my course has been out for even longer, for three years, um, I know that it is um, coming in handy and many people around the world are finding it useful. So, you know, if you maybe start out with 100 people, maybe in the end only about five people actually kind of see a big uptick in their happiness levels because out of 100 people who buy the book, maybe 50 actually read it and then maybe 20 actually do something with it. And then, you know, maybe only about five actually sustain it over a long period of time uh, for it to have an effect. But I'm happy that it's, it's you know, five is better than zero, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was very resonant with me as well, because as an undergrad, you know, when I, I finished my degree in English and in Asian studies and worked inside our family business for a few years before I thought, you know, I got to be missing something about business. I didn't have this background in finance or accounting or marketing or whatever. And I thought, I'm going to go back to school and get an MBA, even though, you know, business wasn't alluring enough to me to make it my undergrad. And my dad actually counseled me against it. Mm. He's like, just do what I did. You know, he was a college dropout and he said, uh, just roll up your sleeves and, and go to work, have a great attitude. And he's like, that's what I did. And I got it. But, you know, of course, I'm so smart. I didn't listen. 
I got a year into an MBA program and I was miserable. I hated it, not only because of the subject, I think, but partly because I didn't really feel like I connected with the other students who I saw as there to get a degree that would help them get a good job or maybe develop this powerful network of people and and earn a lot of money. And what I saw was like, in a way, I'm blessed to already have those things or to have a certainty of those things just by virtue of, you know, the family I'm a part of. And, and, and so with that, I thought, you know, I know that working like this, climbing this ladder, what's that saying about before you climb the ladder of success, make sure it's leaning against the correct wall, mm-hmm. you know? And so in a way, part of my work and why I'm grateful to have this conversation with you today is because, you know, having watched my dad die at 64 years old, largely from overwork, you know, he built something really phenomenal before he passed, but he paid a very high price in his spirituality, his health, his relationships. And I could see, although he did die at peace, and I'm grateful for that, mm-hmm. part of what I see is I want to get up at the top of that wall. People are trying to climb and say, like, enjoy the climb, you know, like, look around, like, you know, yeah. it, it's not so great. It's not so great here. And I don't mean to say, like, I'm all high and mighty or something, but that's obviously you devoted your life to a similar kind of message. Yeah. And I think that it's uh, incredible. From my vantage point, uh, what you're doing and what you've done is so unique uh, that really, I mean, you know, hats off to you. Because uh, most of the people in your position would have been, um, would have found it very difficult to uh, be able to kind of uh, resist the seductive power of uh, the kinds of things that you were called upon to do. I mean, conventional people would have looked at it and said, you know, I can't give up this, you know, I, I have to build and then make it, you know, hundred times this and so on and so forth. But for you to kind of step outside of that, uh, you know, in, in a sense, you're like the Buddha, right? Mm. Like you born a prince and uh, ended up saying, no, I'm interested in why there is suffering in the world and I want to get at the root cause of it. And yeah. uh, that's, that's really incredible. Well, no, thank, thank you. Um, so I want to ask you about the structure of your book, because, again, um, it's easy to talk about some of these things as concepts, you know, happiness as concepts. But before we even get to the structure, I want, if you will, to talk a little bit about the genie exercise that you invite students or others you speak to to do as it relates to happiness and what's so interesting about that. The interesting thing about the genie exercise, actually, you know, before I talk about the interesting thing about it, let me just uh, mention what it is, right? Because some viewers may not be aware of what it is. So I call it actually the genie question. And the genie question goes like this. Imagine that a genie, similar to the one in Aladdin's story, appears in front of you and grants you three wishes. What three wishes would you make? And then I have people list their wishes. And uh, then I look at the wishes and, you know, aggregate them across different categories. Uh, it turns out that, you know, around the world, 50% of the wishes, give or take, uh, have to do with money or things related to money, you know, more, um, you know, bigger house and, you know, materialistic things. And then another good 20, 25% have to do with success and, you know, the accoutrements of success, you know, that, that you get recognized or you're powerful, you're in control and so on and so forth. Um, and very, very few people, uh, only about five to 6% of the people actually ask for happiness. Right. And then I turn around to these people who have not asked for happiness. It's not number one, number two or number three on their wish list. And I ask them, hey, you know, you have all these things. You know, what about happiness? Isn't happiness important for you? And the first response I typically get is, yeah, it is very important. In fact, it's the most important thing. But these things will lead me to happiness. Then I turn around and ask them, well, if happiness is what you ultimately want, why not ask for it directly? 
Why do you want to ask for something that is going to lead you to happiness? I mean, it's like saying, okay, I want to get to Delhi from New York. Uh, let me get a ticket to London, you know, because it happens to fall on the way to <laughs> Delhi. Yeah. Why not get a ticket to Delhi, right? Then they come around and they say, no, no, no. You know, I mean, I uh, I really don't think that I could be happy unless I have this. You know, so then I ask them, how do you know that? You know, what makes you uh, so convinced that you have to have money to be happy? What makes you so convinced that you have to have power and success and all that to be happy? And so it starts kind of like, you know, uh, peeling the layers of the onion, this exercise. Then I ask a separate group of people the same question, but then I remind them that, look, I've told you that the genie is all powerful, all knowing. You can ask for anything, including happiness. And then suddenly the proportion of people who ask for happiness actually shoots up. Okay, so it, the genie exercise reveals to me that people actually do want to be happy, do think that that's the most important thing, but they forget all about it as they're going about their daily life. And why does that happen? I think that happens because we get distracted by other things. We get distracted by power. We get distracted by money. We get distracted by fame and all these extrinsic things. And that in turn um, makes us commit what I call the fundamental happiness error or fundamental happiness paradox, which is that although happiness is most important to us, as you observe people going about their daily lives, they often sacrifice happiness for the sake of other things like power and money and fame and all these extrinsic things. And um, and that's uh, kind of sad because, you know, we know what we want, you know, <laughs> we have the clarity about it if we were to kind of step back and think about it. But then uh, at the same time, I think due, due to, I think, social conditioning and observing other people chasing all these things, I think at some level, uh, that's a more powerful message that seeps into our system that uh, routinely kind of, you know, trips us up and um, derails us from uh, prioritizing what is actually more important to us. So that's, in a nutshell, the genie exercise, yeah. If you ask someone, would you rather be successful and unhappy mm. or unsuccessful and happy, which of course is a false paradox, right? Because you don't, but I think in a way, this question about just why not ask for happiness, mm. it, it occurs for people, it's funny because if you say like, what weighs more, a pound of feathers or a pound of bowling balls? <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, well, of course it's a pound of bowling balls, right? But it's the, it's the same. And, and I think people just it – doesn't, it doesn't occur for us in this way. But um, your book starts to open up some of this insight. So that's where now I want to ask you about the structure because it would be one thing – I mean you could have written this book in a lot of different ways. You could have just written it as a collection of like great thoughts or you could have pre you know, presented it as a really academic – Tome, or you know, it could have been a person. In a lot, there is a lot of personal stories in it, which makes it very readable. I I enjoyed. <laughs> I think your writing is very funny in many places. Um, but why? T will you tell us a little bit about how you've structured it and why? Yeah. So part of the structuring uh, is because of uh, the target audience that I mentioned some time back. You know, these are successful, smart people, and you know, the MBA type. And because you, did you end up, end up finishing your MBA? I did not. I did not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. Uh, but uh, you probably know what I'm talking about. You know, the MBA type, they want key takeaways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, at the yeah, end yeah. of the day, end of, end of every class, they want, okay, here are the seven things that you need to retain. I know that you learned that we talked about today. Key takeaways are very, very important, right? Um, and so I knew that, that that was going to be the mindset of the smart and successful people. So I wanted to kind of give them a framework to hang all the concepts around. You know, if I talked about gratitude, if I talked about compassion, if I talked about uh, the need for mastery, uh, mindfulness, and so on, but as separate concepts, 
I thought that maybe the chances that people would retain these would be less and the chances that people would think that this is a value would be less um, because of the type of people they are. So I came up with this framework, which, as you know, I call it the 777 framework. Basically, I talk about seven deadly happiness sins that we commit, the seven habits of the highly happy, and the seven exercises um, that uh, mitigate these sins and nurture these habits. Okay. So I thought that, you know, the 777 and also using the seven sins, which is kind of like, you know, because of religious, uh, you know, messages, uh, it's a kind of a phrase that people are familiar with. Seven habits, maybe because Stephen Covey, people are uh, familiar with. So I wanted to kind of piggyback on some of those things as a marketing ploy too. So it is that thinking that led me to that structure. Yeah. No, and, and I love it because it kind of looks at it from every perspective. You know, here's what people do. And then there were times that I'm like, oh my gosh, I think, you know, I do that sometimes and here's a way out. It's not just like a pointing out, you know, a certain thought, uh, you know, pattern that I've been running or, or something like that. Like you talked about, I love the thing you said about, um, I think you called it maximizing, uh, I want to say maximizing minimums, but I don't know if that's right. No, the maximizer mindset. The ma- The maximizer mindset. Yeah, or medium maximization. Medium maximization. That's it. So I get focused on what is the means to an end, and not and and, and I guess kind of like the happiness thing you talked about, the genie thing. But but I do that. Will you talk? Will you, because that to me, I think that falls into one of the seven sins. Right. So actually, the the first sin is uh, deprioritizing happiness, right, or sacrificing happiness for the sake of other things. Um, and one of the reasons why we do it is because of media maximization. So media maximization is an explanation for why people get distracted away from happiness, which they deep down know is what they want to kind of ultimately want out of life um, and, and end up pursuing the means to happiness and maximizing the means or maximizing the medium. By the way, that's not my term. Um, it's a term that uh, occurred in a paper that uh, one of uh, you know, the people that I respect a lot, his name is Chris Shi. H-S-E-E, Rishi, he's a professor at Chicago, University of Chicago. So in his, one of his papers, they use that term media maximization. Okay, so I think the best way to explain media maximization is to think about the most prevalent medium, right, which is money. Now, when it comes to money, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, obviously some money is going to help, right? I mean, if you're living below the poverty line, uh, getting money is going to help you meet your basic needs and get food on the table and so on. It's definitely very, very good to pursue money at that point. And if you're somebody at that point, then, you know, you're going to discover that money makes your life better. Money makes you happier, right? And so you're starting to associate money with happiness. And what happens, though, is that, you know, you grow to, let's say, earning about $100,000 a year as a household, let's say, you know, four people, you're the breadwinner for the family and you're earning that much. At that point, everyone's basic needs are being met. You know, more money is not necessarily going to make you, uh, you know, meet your basic needs more. And it turns out that after that point, the relationship between how much money you have and how happy you're going to be, it kind of starts diminishing and perhaps even kind of plateauing it out. And in some cases, even going down a little bit. Okay. But because in your early experiences, more money did make you happier, you're kind of like deep down in the subconscious recesses of your brain, you know, this association between more money and more happiness is so strongly entrenched that you can't help but chase money, you know, more money, more money, more, even if it's making you less happy, you, you can't kind of like, you know, stop yourself from doing it. And that is media maximization. That's maximizing what ought to be the medium for getting the end. You ought to be maximizing the end, but you're, you're stuck media, maximizing the medium. Uh, that's, uh, so that's one of the ways in which you get distracted away from happiness and uh, into prioritizing other things. And when you point out that 
you know, beyond basic needs, happiness really isn't that complicated, right? But maybe one of those things that's simple, not easy, maybe. But you talk about these three things about great social relationships, a sense of purpose, and a positive, a quote, positive attitude toward life. Yeah. What's, what's your view on that today? Because you wrote this book a few years ago mm-hmm. and you did the Coursera course and I'm sure there's things that you've learned since then, which I want to know about. But is it really that simple? Does it really boil down? I mean, once the basic needs are met to great social relationships, having a sense of purpose and maintaining a positive attitude, is it, could it be that easy? Um, I think it is uh, actually that easy. Um, but like you said, I mean, it may be simple, but uh, not easy. Um so yeah, so you know, maybe I, that's what I should say that I I do think that it's that simple, but perhaps not that easy. And what makes it particularly complicated um, is that you know the relationship part. I think most of us get okay, and most of us have ample opportunity for it. And you know, even if um, you're not you've not been raised in a particularly loving family, I think that you kind of intuitively get that having relationships is important. And 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 you know, I, I think we all have opportunities for that. Um, then comes the kind of, uh, you know, I call it mastery. Uh, so having a sense of, okay, this is my field. This is where I want to be good at. You know, you're obviously good at conducting podcasts and interviews. And, you know, I'm good at my own gig. Everyone's got their own gig. And so that too, I think uh, there's not much complication. I think it's the attitude part that's that's really tough. I mean, it's one thing to say that, you know, have a great attitude towards your life, uh, have a positive attitude, you know, look at the positive side of things, be be resilient, be optimistic, have hope. Um, another thing entirely to um, actually be able to mimic those characteristics, particularly when, you know, things are going badly for you, right? When things take a turn towards the south, to be able to kind of, you know, be resilient, be optimistic, that's tough. And I think the reason, a big reason for that is that we are surrounded by a lot of negative messages oftentimes. Uh, if you look at the news, for example, you know, there's a lot of negativity there, Right. And um, you, if you look at what your boss tells you or what your you know, peers might tell you, if you fail at a task, again, I mean, you know, there's a very good chance that it's, it's negative. And the fact that we're also leading pretty um, frenetically paced lives where there's so much going on, and I don't think technology is helping us, uh, although, you know, on paper it ought to, right? Um, it's just giving us a lot of information without you know, helping us figure out which is important and which is not. And how are we going to wade through all that? So I think that in the end, we are we are stuck in a place where we feel that we have a lot of potential, a lot of opportunities, and we ought to be leading happier lives than our ancestors did. We have look how much going for us. And yet the reality is that we don't experience that goodness, feeling of centeredness, harmony, welling up from inside of us. If anything, I mean, we feel fragmented, we feel unhinged, we feel frenzied. Um, you know, there's a term that uh, one of the... Um, uh, authors of a HBR Harvard Business Review article uses attention deficit trait. Attention deficit trait. Uh, it's like ADD, the traits of ADD, but uh, it's not something that's genetic. It's due to the environment. You feel frenzied. You feel impatient. You feel irritable. You feel like there's too many balls up in the air and you can't handle all of it. Very, very common uh, phenomenon. You know, I, I was just talking about this concept with my MBAs and undergrads, and I just through a show of hands asked people, how many of you guys have ADD right now? And like 80% of the hands went up, right? <laughs> like not just like in general, but you're like in this moment. Yeah, so so um, you, you can you can see that, you know, it's, it's maybe simple. I mean, in the end, yeah, you know, this is all we need really to be happy. It's like coming home, right? I mean, you circle all around the world looking for this 
these golden keys and they were always there in your house. The classic story, right? And, and the hero's journey and always returning home. I mean, I have this, I have this theory. I'm not even sure it, it, it's fully formed enough to deserve to be called a theory, but you talked about technology just a moment ago. And, and in your book, you use these terms, time scarcity, time abundance, mm-hmm. you know, this, this kind of thing. And, and so my theory is that we are creating tools you know, obviously in the form of technology that are helping us to see aspects of ourselves, right? So that we can become more fully formed or whatever you might say, more, more complete as beings. Um, and, and some of these, while they seem to encourage us to further fragment our attention or to, you know, intensify the hurry, the sense of hurry, the hurry sickness that maybe our culture has, like all this kind of thing. At the same time, what I wonder is, were those things always there? And now the tools and the situations we create in which to use them just become the clearings in which that becomes evident. I know that's a very conceptual thought, but just to take it one step further and then attempt to turn it into a question is if, if that makes any sense to you and if you see it at all that way, what's – like one of the things that's been totally transformational for me was to, to realize or come to believe that I can feel any emotion in any moment. It's possible. Now, the situation and environment and all of that might not be conducive to feeling something like peace or you know, centeredness or whatever, but it's available. So then what that implies is not only greater awareness but greater mastery right? Greater responsibility over that. But do you find that, that people who experience greater levels of happiness are more, more conscious and more responsible in shaping their response to the situations? Or is it like, is there a certain trait or, or are we just, you know, kind of subject to whatever life throws at us and, you know, we're happy in a certain time and place doing a certain thing or not? That was a really unwieldy question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I think there were like two or three parts to it, right? I think you, you began with this idea that maybe we have within us the potential to be frenzied and distracted and, and the um, availability of technology is just uh, uh, allowing that potential to come out rather than, you know, uh, really instilling in us things that didn't exist. Yeah, it's it's not creating it. It's merely exposing it. Exposing it, Yeah. I think that's that's a that is the first part, and then the you went on to talking a little bit about this idea that uh, to to be totally happy and to be able to sustain it, uh, isn't it true that you know you got to be aware that you know you have options available for you to respond to events that are happening to you, um, and that you're not um, kind of chained or uh, you're not constrained by the external circumstances and what life throws at you, that you have a choice and. You have some flexibility, right? I mean, those yeah. are yeah, yeah, yeah. two things that I did. If you want to just conduct the rest of the interview, I'll take it from here. That's great. You're doing great. <laughs> no, no, I just want to make sure that those were the... Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Right? Um, so I don't know if you want me to talk about the first one or the second one. You know, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm just wondering what you see in, in either one of those things and, and, and specifically how it relates to what we can do or maybe not do to, you know, the people listening to, to experience greater levels of happiness more easily? Yeah. So uh, certainly when it comes to the second uh, part of your question, uh, this idea that uh, you have to develop, you know, in the, in the literature, they, they talk about this as response flexibility, response flexibility, right? The idea that, you know, um, you are going to encounter events 
stimulation that provoke uh, some kind of reaction from you. And uh, you have the choice of either going with your conditioned reflexive responses, many of which are hardwired and even more of which are socialized into you. Or at some point comes a milestone where you step back and say, look, I mean, the, this, is not this is not the only way in which I can respond to this particular event. And I can learn, I can acquire new arrows in my quiver, so to speak. I can expand my repertoire of uh, how I respond to this. Um, and that is certainly a big milestone in anybody who's um, become uh, very good at um, uh, you know, taking personal responsibility for their own happiness. You, know? uh, you can't, in other words, uh, be good at uh, maintaining equanimity and, and happiness uh, on a sustained basis unless you've come to this milestone of recognizing that Look, I, I'm not uh, a prisoner of the events that happened to me, okay, in terms of my emotions. Uh, I definitely have a choice here. Um, and that's part of the reason what makes this uh, simple and not so easy, right? I mean, uh, it's one thing to say this in concept, and I think many people would recognize the truth of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, A, what are the set of practices that enable me to acquire that response flexibility, and secondly, you know, uh, how do I put those uh, habits or practices into um, uh, into operation and how do I kind of actually do them, right? So if you talk, think about mindfulness, for example, as a practice, uh, there's a lot of evidence showing that mindfulness allows for that response flexibility to, uh, to blossom. Um, and so it's one of the kind of more reliable means of uh, developing that response flexibility. But uh, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to figure out exactly how to practice mindfulness. And we are kind of in a very, very interesting age right now because uh, of the availability of some technology that actually enables us to practice this better. I don't know if you've come across something called Muse. Uh, these are headbands. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You your brain waves and stuff like that. I haven't used it, but I've seen it online. Have you used it? Yeah, I've used it. I like I like it. I mean, I still use it. What do you what benefits do you get from it? It's biofeedback, Right. So um, if you put it on and then, um, you know, the typical session is to kind of focus on your breath. And if you're unable to focus on your breath, then you hear kind of thunder and, you know, stuff like that uh, and, and the storm kind of a thing. Um, That's much better than the negative self-talk I would hear otherwise. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if things are, if you're able to focus on your breath, then you hear birds chirping and the, and the winds kind of calm down. So it's telling you in real time that you're doing well or you're not doing well. You know, oftentimes it's difficult to figure that out because it's all internal, right? If you're riding a bicycle, you know if you've fallen or not. But if your aim is to focus on your breath, what does it even mean to focus on your breath? You know, uh, what does that consist of? So yeah. I think that you get this feedback through news. Anyway, so back to your question. So the, that's very, very important, right? I mean, it's super important to recognize that you have flexibility. And um, then it's important to recognize what are the set of um, ways in which I can develop that flexibility. and even more important to actually practice those things so that you gain that gain that ability over time. That makes so much so much sense to me. And, and slowing down and cultivating greater awareness. I mean, it seems, uh, at least in my current line of research, is that this is what it keeps coming back to. I mean, maybe there are other ways, but this one is pretty reliable. And you know, although there's probably not a one size fits all, there's not one app, one teacher, one mindfulness technique. The the practice of mindfulness is what is common. And um, one thing I want to be sure to ask, because I think it's relevant at this point in the conversation, is you you talk in this book a little bit about the concept of mental chatter. Mm -hmm. And 
and it wasn't only within the last year, I think, that someone suggested to me, something I read suggested to me, that it's possible to be addicted to thinking, mm-hmm. which had never occurred to me. But I think prior to that awareness, I was. Now, I probably still am, right? But when I saw your concept of mental chatter, um, that definitely came up for me. And and especially what you you found about what percentage of our mental chatter we we think is negative versus what probably really is. Will you talk a little bit about what mental chatter is and what you've learned about it? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the the term mental chatter I actually first encountered through another gentleman. His name is Sri Kumar Rao. I sat in on one of his classes and he brought this up. And basically, you can think of mental chatter as the kind of static noise in the background of your mind that's constantly active. It's commenting, judging, um, you know, just kind of there's a running commentary uh, that it's giving about everything that's happening to you, right? I hate that guy. <laughs> Always evaluating, assessing, opining, judging, right? right. Always. Yeah. And uh, most people never really, I mean, I think most people are aware that there is such a thing as mental chatter. You know, they are aware that there's a voice in the back of the head, but uh, they've not really spent much time thinking about, okay, what's the emotional tenor of this mental chatter? You know, what's he saying? And is it positive? Is it negative? So, you know, the, don't lose your thought, but I want to jump in there for a moment. I'm actually surprised that there are people that don't know that, right? Like I remember I was in a couple years ago, I was in a large workshop, one of these LGATs, the large group awareness training. And the facilitator invited us to start to pay attention to that voice. And there was a lady in the group who gasped audibly when she discovered there had been a little narrator. <laughs> Along for her, whatever, she was probably 50 years old and, and kind of similarly, not to out my wife's you know secrets or anything, but she told me that the book that helped awaken her to that was um, Eckhart Tolle, you know, a, a New Earth. And she's like, I remember where I was when I read it. I remember the impact it had to have this awareness. So I, I don't remember learning when I had one. It just seems like, yeah, I always kind of knew it. But I think there's still a surprising number of people that they, they're not aware that that's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it might depend on... Uh what uh, is called in the research as uh, how self-aware versus self-opaque you are. And some of us are just more introspective and are aware of these things and other people, not so much, you know? Yeah. So I, I didn't mean to derail you there, but if you'll please, please keep going. So, yeah. So, um, so in this exercise, what we ask people to do is to kind of like tune into that mental chatter and then just write down whatever that mental chatter, the content of that mental chatter is. And uh, often people are asked, you know, ask me, okay, wh- how exactly do I tune in? So, for example, if I feel like I'm going to um, go to the gym now, do I write down, I'm, I feel like I'm going to go to the gym? I say, no, no, that's your goal. That's your conscious thought. You've got to kind of tune into what's going on behind that conscious thought. Okay, maybe the conscious, behind the conscious thought is, you know, I really don't want to go to the gym. I don't feel like I'm going to have a good session. I'm really tired. I should be going to go to sleep. You know, that's the thought. That's the thought that's underlying the conscious plan of going to go to the gym. Anyway, so... It turns out one of the good ways to um, tune into your mental chatter is to actually sit down to do a meditation session, you know? So when you're trying not to kind of really think about anything in particular, that's when the mental chatter kind of becomes a little louder. Anyway, so I ask people to write this down and my colleagues and I have done this uh, across different groups of people, including students and retirees and so on. And people are very surprised. Okay, so before I ask them to do this, I ask them to indicate, okay, let's say there are 100 mental chatter thoughts, what proportion of them are going to be positive and what proportion negative. And I forget the exact data now, but, you know, people generally predict over 60% to be positive, okay, maybe 70% to be positive. But then later on, when they actually do this exercise for a couple of weeks and come back, and then they looked at the, look at the kind of overall um, 
number of thoughts they have and the proportions, it turns out it's exactly the opposite. You know, there's many more negative thoughts than there are positive thoughts. And yeah. those negative thoughts fall into these buckets, uh, you know, of, you know, thoughts about relationships, thoughts about uh, feeling inadequate or incompetent at work and thoughts about not having enough control uh, and uh, certainty uh, about how life is unfolding. Yeah. Is your experience or your belief that we can actually shift the kind of fundamental nature of our mental chatter? Like, is it, you know, with affirmations or by, you know, consciously mapping out our values and, you know, having that as a belief or just putting ourselves in certain environments, surrounding ourselves with positive, uplifting people? I mean, will will these things have a lasting effect on changing our mental chatter, do you think? Or is this some innate kind of survival instinct that, that persists? Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that we do have something called negativity dominance, right? Uh, so there are 10 things that happen in the environment and nine of those are positive and one is negative. Let's say you make a presentation, somebody comes to me later after the blog is up and nine of them say good things and one of them says bad things. I'm going to remember the bad thing more, okay? That's um, going to have a bigger impact on me. Um, it's going to uh, leave behind a bigger psychological scar, whatever you want to call it. That I think is genetic. Um, and, you know, there are some scholars who've talked about why that might be uh, back in the day when we had to survive uh, lots of dangers out there in the real world. You had to focus on the dangers in order to survive. And we are the progenies of those who survived. They are the ones who made the babies. Okay, So we have a hard wiring that is uh, prone to negativity. But uh, what's also true is that... Um, we can train our mind to focus on positives. Okay. And some people here at this point would ask me this question. Okay. But is that a wrong thing to do? Because if adaptation has taught us to be negative, isn't it a good thing uh, for us to continue to be negative? Then I tell them that, look, I mean, back in the day, for sure, you know, if you're still surviving or, or fighting for survival, go ahead and be negative. You know, it's, if you're in the war zone in, in, in uh, you know, Afghanistan, or you're stuck in a slum in India, go ahead and be negative, but you're not right. You don't have to literally fend for survival every day. And, in this context that you find yourself, where um, you're not fighting for survival, it's in fact more adaptive, more productive to be positive because you'll have better relationships, you'll have better success, you'll feel good from the inside out. Um, and so I, I think it is possible to train ourselves. Um, and what I would say, and this actually goes back a little bit to this question of, you know, the technology kind of tap into what already existed or did, did, did put things in us. Um, I would say that we have what I call, what I, you know, some researchers call latent propensities. You know, we have latent propensities for negativity. We have latent propensities for positivity. We have latent propensities for selfishness, self-centeredness. We have um, in equally strong measure propensities for altruism and other-centeredness and so on. And what comes out, what gets nurtured, what is exhibited is what we practice. Okay. And the more we practice one side of things, the more the uh, angelic side of us uh, gets more nurtured as opposed to the uh, demonic side, okay? And oftentimes, we don't even recognize it. Uh, one of the other two sides just nurtured and reinforced just by the environment, you know, by the uh, uh, particular set of things that we get exposed to, which we don't control, like the news or the set of people we hang around and so on. But once we recognize that we have both sides and um, it's like feeding the dog, right? Whichever dog you feed is going to be the stronger one. And so, you've got to make a choice at, at some point of which dog do I feed, okay? And and so, yeah, what you said about is it changeable? Is it Does it depend on the environment? Does it depend on who you hang out with? Absolutely it does, okay? I'll give you a very, very quick example of this. A study done at Stanford University where um, they had this game called uh, the dictator game, right? Um, so I'm just going to I, simplify I like this. it already. 
<laughs> the dictator game. Yes. Yeah. My my employees might tell you I play that already. I don't know. But, but let's hear how Stanford played it. <laughs> right. What happens in this game is that, you know, two people are invited into the lab and um, one of them is randomly picked out to be the quote unquote dictator. And they're given a certain sum of money, let's say $10. And they're told that, okay, you get to split this money between yourself and this other person. Okay. And that other person cannot complain. They just have to walk out with whatever they get. Okay. That's the dictator game. And um, so let's say I, I'm the dictator, you and I are playing the game and I get $10 and I give you $3. I, I keep seven to myself. There's nothing you can do about it. You walk away with three. Okay. Um, there's also another game called the ultimatum game and the ultimatum game, the same setup. I get $10. I, I split it seven, three, and you can say, screw you. I don't want the $3. That's unfairly low. And then I wouldn't get the seven. Okay. So I have an incentive to give you enough just above the level of your cutoff so that I get some to keep something. Okay. In the ultimatum game. The dictator game, you can't do anything. Okay, so rationally speaking, quote unquote, rationally, uh, I should keep all ten or you know close to ten and give you very little. So this is the background, right? And what they did was very clever. They called these people into these uh, lab and and they said, okay, we're going to play these games. And for one set of people, they call them community games. Okay, community games. For the other set, they call them Wall Street games. Wall Street. Mm. Games, okay, and then they looked at the amount of money that was distributed. Okay. Um, and it turned out that in the set of participants in the group, which where, where it was called the community games, people was, uh, were making much higher contributions and allocations to their partners than in that context in which they were called the uh, Wall Street games. Okay, just the simple relabeling of an otherwise identical game um, makes a big difference to how people behave. So you know, it's I think a very very revealing experiment because it tells you that the context, the environment, the signals that we see can have a huge impact on our behaviors. Okay? Yeah. And, and going back to this, you know, we have two sides, the, the, the kind of positive and the negative. Um, it's not a big surprise that the environment we choose to expose ourselves to, often it's a matter of choice, but oftentimes the environment we, we find ourselves in can have a big impact on how we behave. Yeah. And, and that was true for both the dictator game and the ultimatum, that they were more giving. Go back and look at the uh, exact set of nature of things that they did, but I believe, yeah, they, they played both games. Yeah, for just calling it. So, yeah, I have a teacher who shared the way he phrased it is the context is decisive. Yes. And I'm hearing that in Wall Street game versus, uh, you know, community game. That's fascinating. That, that's really fascinating. And and the other thing I love that you talk about in your book is where you mentioned, you know, some people will, when they offer like a rebuttal or a yeah, but is, well, if, yeah, well, if I'm choosing to reframe and refocus um, all the time, if I, like, if I have to do that, I can diminish my success drive or my survival institute or whatever. But I like how you liken that to strength. You're like, well, you can have big muscles, but it doesn't mean you have to use them all the time, right? So you can turn it on and off, so to speak. Exactly. So I, I think that one of the things that uh, people say about this uh, idea of gaining personal responsibility for your happiness, right? I think it's in that context that I talk about it, that um, if you are, uh, uh, you know, capable of being happy in Every moment, some people are worried that, you know, will I just be like kind of like an idiot that's just going around smiling despite whatever is happening and not really paying attention to things and so on. Which is a valid concern, by the way, right? I mean, <laughs> but if you're happy, who cares? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's up to you. I, I think it's, that's where I use that analogy of, you know, if you're really, really strong, are you going to kind of like, you know, go around slapping everybody all the time just because you're strong? No, you have the capacity to be happy at all times. You have the capacity to choose to be equanimous and content or whatever. 
but doesn't mean that every situation calls for that emotion. In some yeah. situations, it doesn't mean you have to let people walk all over you. No. In right. fact, I think that, you know, at least for me, what I've discovered is that the more centered and stable I am, right, and it takes a lot of work to get there, obviously, um, then the less I am susceptible to being influenced in ways I do not want to be influenced by other people. You know, I can look people straight in the eye and tell them that you committed something that was 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 an unfair act much more uh, strong, much more let's say productively um, with a desirable result than I can if I were perturbed and I got like I lost it and I became angry and I was in a fit of rage. You know, yeah. that leads often to uh, behaviors in a way that uh, are very counterproductive. No question. Will you tell me a little bit about what you've discovered about the link between generosity and happiness? Yeah. So again, I mean, I, I, I want to kind of just to be technically correct. It's not uh, my own work, but it's the work of, you know, many scholars. Um, and essentially what um, a lot of findings show is that uh, being generous is one of the most reliable, um, most sustainable um, sources of uh, positivity, right? Uh, I interviewed uh, this, uh, you know, remarkable researcher. She's perhaps one of the best known in this field of positive psychology uh, by the name of Sonia Lubomirsky, who's got a bunch of books out there yeah, on the how of happiness. Yeah. And I interviewed her and she uses this uh, term to refer to um, expressing gratitude. Um, and she calls it a kind of meta strategy. Okay. A meta strategy, meaning that it's uh, a strategy that's above all other strategies. Meta means above. And um, so, and the reason she calls it a meta strategy for happiness is because it hits on so many of the uh, reasons or sources of happiness. Uh, so just to give you a couple, uh, you know, one thing that uh, gratitude does is when you express gratitude is that it obviously makes other people like you better, right? So right off the bat, it, it kind of uh, embeds you in these kind of positive reciprocal relationships. And to the extent that relationships matter a lot to human beings, which it does, of course, we are highly social as a as a species, um, you're doing the right thing to elicit a positive response from other people. Okay, so that's one. The second thing that it does is that um, it kind of diminishes um, the propensity for you to uh, experience what some other researchers call hubristic pride. Hubristic pride is when uh, you feel you're superior to other people and that you know you're special, uh, you're better than them. And if you achieve some success and, you know, you pat yourself on the back and you say nobody else could have done it and I'm the one and so on, that's when you feel hubristic pride. Now, in that same situation, if instead you looked around and said, okay, surely I did a lot of things, but surely a lot of things out of my control that cooperated with me without which I could not have achieved this success, then you feel this gratitude. You feel gratitude towards your, maybe your parents, your mentors, your teachers. You can go all the way back to your birth and say, fact that I was born in this lovely country, you know, I mean, Supposing I'd been, I mean, I didn't have a choice of where I was born. Supposing I'd been born in, let's say, in a war struck zone, right? Uh, I could not have done this. Um, so uh, when you express gratitude, you're giving credit in a very legitimate way. This is not delusional thinking. In a very legitimate way, you're giving credit to sources that actually contributed to your happiness uh, and to your success. And when you do that, um, you're kind of suppressing your ego or, or you're kind of, you know, lowering the... Um, attribution of the success to your egotistical self. And uh, therefore, you're less likely to feel hubristic pride and you're more likely to feel a sense of connection and love and gratitude to the external world. And so you can think of gratitude as a kind of a bridge that takes you from an egotistical set of emotions to a 
non-egotistical set of emotions. And it turns out the non-egotistical set of emotions have a longer shelf life. <laughs> so, you know, so gratitude hits on relationships. It hits on um, you experiencing non-egotistical emotions, which have a longer uh, chance to uh, last a you know, longer time. Um, and also it, it makes you feel less vigilant, less um, uh, prone to kind of anxiety and therefore you sleep better. You know, just a wonderful kind of a practice, gratitude. There is a book that I would recommend in this context called Thanks, you know, by a guy called Emmons, E-M-M-O-N-S is his name, last name. What do you like about that book? Oh, it's, it's a research-based book, you know. So that's one of the biases that I have um, is that I'm um, more likely to um, – um, more likely to uh, believe something, I suppose I, I should say, uh, subscribe to something if uh, it, it, it's got some data backing it up. And yeah. so it's, it's a very research-based book and uh, it outlines a lot of these reasons why uh, uh, gratitude uh, enhances happiness levels and also chances of success. Yeah. All those reasons um, make sense and, and it just feels good, right? <laughs> There's a couple of things I really like about this book as well. One is that you have incorporated into it a kind of pay it forward component. That's right. right. Yeah. And I would love if you'd be willing to talk about that. And, uh, and then maybe we'll just start with that and then I'll go to the next one, which is your Coursera course. I want to, I want to understand a little bit more why you did that and what it's been like, because last I heard there were more than 125,000 people that have gone through this program and I'm sure it's increased since then, but will you start by telling me about the pay it forward? I, um, have a kind of uh, part of my website. My website is happysmarts.com. Uh, and one of the pages on it is the paid forward page where you can buy the book, my book for any amount that you want to contribute towards the book. Uh, you'll be charged some amount of money for the shipping, um, which is kind of out of my control. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so you can pay as little as zero and you'd get a book shipped to you. Um, and uh, that's happening because somebody else paid for this book. Uh, somebody who came before you in this chain. And then you can choose to pay as much as you want for uh, the next person to buy the book. And it can be as little as zero. It can be as much as, I think the highest that I've gotten is $150 or something. Wow. Uh, that's, that's not bad. Um, but actually, I shouldn't say I have gotten it. It kind of goes back to kind of feeding the chain, right? Yeah. Uh, so um, it's been going on now for like three years. And uh, we have sold about, I want to say... Uh, 800 books or something like that wow. as long as that um so it's not like super long i mean astoundingly high number but it's not a bad number either okay um so uh that's the idea the and the i i got this idea uh, from um a set of findings and this one speaker that came into my uh, my class and guest spoke his name is nipun nipun mehta nipun mehta he's got a nice tedx talk on on this idea of giftivism uh, and he basically kind of believes that people actually want to give, want to be altruistic. And so that's the opposite of the kind of uh, homo economicus model of, uh, you know, uh, people are selfish and people do things only because uh, only when it benefits them. And so they did a bunch of experiments and he's got this kind of a real world experiment. It's called Karma Kitchen. Uh, it's in the Bay Area uh, and it's in a few other places around the world. And Basically, you can go into the karma kitchen and it's the same concept that somebody else who came before you has paid for your meal and now you can afford to pay as much as you want or, I mean, you can pay as much as you uh, can afford or, you know, you, you don't pay at all, you know. And um, so I just thought that was very neat and I thought, okay, let me do this. Okay, so I, I just bought basically 
can't remember now exactly how many copies I bought, but I bought a bunch of copies and I said, okay, this is going to be seed copies and let's see how, how, how long it goes. And like I said, it's been going on for about three years now. That's so great. Yeah. Will you talk to me a little bit about your decision to create this as an online course and to give the course away free as well? What, what, what motivated you to do that? What the response has been? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I happen to be in a very lucky position, right? That I have a day job. Uh, that's not just a day job. It's a well-paying day job. You know, I don't know if people know this, but as a business school professor, you basically get more for doing very similar work to, let's say, a person in economics or psychology does. Um, but, you know, double, maybe sometimes triple the amount of salary, right? Just because we happen to be in the business school, uh, business school, you know, costs more for students to get in. And I think in some way that funnels back to the uh, faculty teaching. So um, long, you know, basically what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable, you know, I mean, I'm not saying this uh, to, to kind of boast or anything like that, really out, out of gratitude. I, I think I'm, so I have a day job. And so when I wrote this book, when I, when I, uh, thought of these concepts and I wanted to disseminate it. It wasn't from the perspective of, I want to make money out of this. Uh, I just want to spread the word and to the extent possible, if, uh, you know, it has a positive effect on people, um, then, you know, that's, that was my primary motivation. And so when I got the opportunity to uh, try this out and offer, a, offer the course content online, uh, I, I jumped at it. Uh, I was also very curious intellectually about how this whole thing would work because, you know, online education is new, right? Even now it's new. And when I first offered this course and when I first actually had the invitation, it was in 2014, you know, pretty early days of uh, online education, at least MOOCs, okay? Massive open online courses. Um, and so uh, I just I just jumped at it. And uh, like you said, it's been, you know, re- really well received, you know, way beyond my dreams and aspirations. 250,000 students. Wow. Okay. Amazing. From literally every country in the world. Um uh, and over, you know, 4,000 uh, ratings and on average a 4.8 rating for the course out of five. Uh, and it's been rated the best MOOC massive open online course uh, for 2015 and 16 and 17. I don't know what's going to happen for 18. Uh, we'll see the results soon. Um, so uh, really, really well received. And again, I mean, I, I don't say this to boast, but uh, I think it speaks to the fact that there's a deep, deep hunger for the topic of happiness around the world. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right. And to have the content be something that's, I mean, I do think motive matters, right? And your motive was not to get rich, clearly. You're giving it away. It wasn't, I don't think, to, you know, to uh, impress others. Um, and I think that that authenticity comes through. And, and the fact that, you know, you've sat down with so many of these leading thinkers and created video. And it's um, it's, it's just amazing to me that that you've done that. Um, so that, oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I find, uh, you know, myself again, being very grateful for uh, being uh, in a place where I could do it. And like you said, you know, I, I interviewed about 25 people and some of these are like really big time thinkers uh, and professors uh, like Dan Ariely and Tom Gilovich and Mihai Shiks and Mihai, Sonia Rebomirsky, um, Ed Diener, uh, you know, really big names in the field. And, uh, you know, they all kind of spared some of their time uh, for me to interview them. On average, I would say about an hour, uh, even though on the course itself, each one probably figures for about two minutes, <laughs> right? So, yeah, uh, it's it's really um, amazing uh, that I was part of this uh, this experiment. 
Well, and I, and I think you're right, too, that there is a deep hunger for this. And it makes sense to me, you know, when I stand back and someone pointed out, you know, that really the concerns facing us as a society, once you get past, which not to say, you know, you overlook them or, or think they're a simple thing because they're not. But, you know, if you look at global warming, you look at nuclear proliferation, you look at uh, artificial intelligence, <laughs> clearly there's some big concerns and work to do there, including all the environmental degradation that's happening. But right along with that is like, okay, these other – these twin concerns of human happiness and, and well-being and uh, longevity. That's mm-hmm. like all this – that we've reached a point where we are secure enough and these – you know, we're up Maslow's hierarchy far enough mm-hmm. that for – although clearly there's still many people that don't have access to basic concerns, water and healthcare and education and so forth, there are so many of us who are – you know, blessed to be in a place where materially we're pretty well off asking ourselves, is this it? Or is, you know, that addiction or that suicide or the depression or whatever that so many people are falling into that it's like life is not working Mm -hmm. for for many people. And and my hope is that this is the moment of transformation or awakening, Yeah, you know, where the world does start to work for everyone. And I, I choose to believe it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, the kind of jury is out there, right? We'll see uh, which way it'll go. I, I, I do think that we are at a pivotal point, although, you know, many people will point out that there's been many uh, occasions in the past too when big thinkers have said, this is the pivotal point, this is the pivotal point. But right now it feels like it because of, you know, a lot of the factors that you mentioned, uh, like artificial intelligence, you know, it has a lot of promise, but it also comes with it, with it a, with a lot of potential for peril. Uh, I think particularly when you multiply that with internet and the potential for ideas to spread really fast, so on, who knows, you know, but I, I'm like you, I'm kind of an optimist. Yeah. I want to ask you just a few more questions on this topic before we transition mm-hmm. um, to the next segment. But what, what, one thing I want to ask you about, I love what you said. Um, this was on a podcast I listened to with you. I think you said, somebody asked you to define happiness mm. and I heard you say, that it's being lighthearted, but not at the cost of compassion or rationality. Yeah. You still feel that way or would you give an alternate definition? Uh, I, I still feel that way. I still feel that way. Uh, I think that to some extent, um, one's definition of what happiness is, is going to be personal. Um, and it's going to reflect your personality. And, you know, your personality is probably a uh, function of your uh, genetics and your uh, early life experiences. And for me, I like it a lot. I think the most positive experiences of my life have been when I have felt this sense of lightheartedness, you know, where even if I'm doing things that are important and serious, I don't take myself too seriously. Okay. Um, And that lightheartedness, that ability to see the lighter side of things, the ability to have an easy laugh um, of banter, of being in a playful mood, Um, even if I'm doing things that are, you know, uh, intellectually heavy, for example, uh, I've gravitated towards that. You know, to other people, it might be the sense of spiritual oneness or, or a deep sense of love and connection with other people. You know, everyone's got their own kind of favorite emotion, I feel. And for me, it's this lightheartedness. And I wanted to put in those two other kind of counterweights to that lightheartedness of of rationality and compassion, because sometimes um, even if I don't, you know, other people kind of wonder if if you're lighthearted doesn't mean that you're taking 
making fun of every situation, even if other people are taking it seriously. No, I, I mean, I don't want to come across that way. Um, so I don't want to make sure that I'm not um, stepping on anybody else's toes or offending anybody. So I do want to be compassionate. That comes um, in a sense first uh, that, you know, I want to make sure that my lightheartedness is within the boundaries of compassion. And neither do I want to be like we discussed some time back, right? A, a, a village idiot, right? Right. In a very delusional way uh, without recognizing the gravity of the situation or something like that. You know, it's not that either. So uh, within those two extremes, I do think that there's a lot of scope to play around. And, and that's what yeah. I want to. I think, I think so too. So let me ask you this. The concept of Leela, mm-hmm. right, is something I had not been exposed to before just a couple years ago. And it's something I sure think about a lot. Would you be willing to share? I, you and I have never talked about this particular concept before. And uh, I'm wondering if you would be willing to just kind of share what your understanding of this term is and, and what your thoughts are about it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Nobody's ever asked me this question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you've asked me quite a few questions that nobody's asked. I'm very impressed with your questions and the amount of research that, is, that you've put into this, obviously. That's it's awesome. Um, so, you know, Leela, for those who are not familiar with the concept, uh, is kind of like, a, I would say, a Hindu um, religious kind of a term. And the term being uh, referring to uh, the uh, creation and existence being a kind of a dance, a cosmic dance, um, and a playful cosmic dance, uh, kind of uh, promulgated, I don't know if that's the word, <laughs> by, by the gods. Because, you know, they were just kind of wanted to have fun and they wanted an outlet for their creativity. And, and so everything that you see, everything that exists is, is just a manifestation of that grand dance, the, the Leela, the play, um, so to speak. And um, I like that concept a lot. Um, and perhaps it's not very surprising given the definition of happiness I have, uh, which is one of lightheartedness heartedness and playfulness and that very much taps into the idea that, look, I mean, even if whatever is happening right now seems extremely serious and, you know, um, negative, uh, if it's just a play at the end of the day, then, you know, you can go home at the end and, and kind of think of this as something that happened outside of you rather than to you. Um, there is a danger, of course, that, you know, some people might point out that if you look at it that way, then, you know, you might not really kind of... Um, uh, take things seriously or at least take other people's negative emotions and the experience that they are having seriously and they just brush it off and say it's just a play you know uh, you're screwed but so what it's a play you know and while you yourself have this cushy life and so that's why the compassion angle is important right I mean yeah. I, I don't want to um, not, not be compassionate but I think that um, it, it makes um, it's emotionally appealing to me, but I think that intellectually also it, it makes sense uh, for me. At least for me, it makes sense, this idea. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the reason is because um, if you uh, think to how things unfold, right, um, things don't happen randomly. I think th- things happen because of things that happened before them. Um, if there's rain falling down, it's because, you know, water was sucked up by the sun into the skies. And then, you know, at one point it, it kind of became too cold and heavy and therefore it kind of stayed and did not go into the stratosphere, but uh, then it has to come down once it gets cold because it's heavy now and, and so on. And so uh, everything has basically a, a root cause that came before it. And so everything is a concatenation of a set of events that are logically following from things that happened before them. And if you kind of rewind all this back, I guess you would end up at the Big Bang 
um, you know, which is the most prevalent or well-accepted theory of the origins of the universe, which is a bizarre theory, because, you know, <laughs> first time somebody hears of it, I mean, they really want to, I mean, this can't be scientific, right? Because, you know, according to that, as you know, I mean, everything that we know existed in a space smaller than the head of a pin drop, uh, and then expanded out from there to like, you know, billions of galaxies, with billions of stars each with all of us, every single molecule that you see here, you, me, everything, we're all tightly packed together in a space smaller than the space of a pinhead, right? We're all deeply connected. And all of this is, is an unfolding of that moment. And so if you look at it from that perspective, everything is pre-programmed and there is no such thing as free will. Um, and things are happening because of things that happened before them that they're propelling other people to behave, I mean, not other people, but physical objects to behave in a certain fashion. But even, even things that we think are volitional, you know, you didn't choose where you were born. You didn't choose your genetic hardwiring. You didn't choose your uh, social upbringing. Um, so if somebody else, else were born exactly as you with your upbringing and with your kind of looks and everything, would they behave any differently? Probably not, you know. Uh, and some people would say definitely not because that's who you are. I mean, that's how you're programmed to behave. Uh, and so, you know, if that is true, then at some level, the thing that we are assuming is our behavior is actually the behavior of the grand universe, uh, just manifesting itself through us. And so that is the definition of a play, in a sense, is that you're acting a role without realizing that, you know, you're in that role, you get caught up in that role, but it's a role. Uh, and the role was given to you outside of you. Uh, you didn't decide on that role. Um, and so, um, you know, it's consistent with this idea of uh, the Leela, um, with the, the gods playing through us. Um, and just expressing their creativity. And it's simultaneously, for me, very freeing, um, which is why emotionally, I guess I like it, because it just tells me that, look, I mean, you know, obviously I don't want to commit any crimes or anything like that. And, you, you know, because uh, that would <laughs> make the play take a turn that, you know, it would be difficult for me to live with. But, you know, conceptually, that would be a turn that was taken by the gods and not me, according to this, this kind of a way of looking at things. Um, anyway, long, long kind of answer to your question, um, but that's where I stand on it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think it's such an interesting concept and there's so many implications. You know, I remember reading Einstein's biography just a year or so ago. And at one point, you know, this was the one that Isaacson wrote and it's suggesting that Einstein also believed or at least strongly considered that there is no such thing as free will, whether it's electrons or planets in, you know, orbit, that everything behaves according to certain laws and principles, and why would human behavior be anything different? And as much as people, you know, we, me, might not want to believe that, at the same time, if I'm honest and I step back and say, what proof do I have otherwise? No. You know, none. I mean, what proof do I have that it's true or false? None. But for me, interesting to think about. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that was, uh, I, and I hope that I hope that was useful to you who were listening as well, this idea of, of Leela, basically uh, a play. The part of it that I think is, is both intriguing and um, sometimes concerning to me, which I love the idea, is this idea that life is a purposeless play, that life is the purpose, right? So, so how interesting. And if that perspective is adopted, how much easier it is to appreciate, enjoy, be happy in that moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so last question before we transition. I want to ask you about the work you do inside the Whole Foods Academy for Conscious Leadership. Will you tell me like how that came about, what your involvement is, what the result of it has been, that kind of thing? Sure. 
Yeah. Uh, so I'll jump to uh, the kind of present moment. Right now, that, that Academy of Conscious Leadership has been dissolved. Oh, that was Bezos. Huh? He, Bezos. <laughs> I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> I, I think it happened even before he took on uh, that role, uh, before he came into uh, Whole Foods. Um, but uh, the way it happened, if I remember this correctly, uh, in 2012, um, I went and gave a talk at Whole Foods here in Austin. As you know, it's headquartered here. And uh, um, some of the people there in that uh, talk uh, liked what I had to say. And so they said, hey, you know, we hold these workshops and um, we ha also have this thing called the Academy of Conscious Leadership. And as you might know, John Mackey. Uh, has a book, right, co-authored with Raj Sisodia called Conscious uh, Capitalism. Yeah, and Raj has been a guest on this show as well, you might know. Okay, yeah. very good. He's a good friend of mine too. Bro. Oh, amazing human being. Yeah, 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 yeah he is. Awesome. Um, so uh, they said, uh, would you like to be part of this? And I said, yes, of course. And so I've, I've been to, I, I want to say, four, five uh, like of these workshops, events. Uh, and remember, we're going to one in uh, somewhere in Phoenix, near Phoenix, another one up in Wisconsin. And then, you know, I've been to a couple here in Austin itself. And, um, uh, I, you know, the idea was very much along the lines of, uh, you know, this idea of conscious capitalism, right? Uh, so value-driven um, and, you know, part of the value system being, you know, one for all, all for one uh, kind of a setup. Um, and, and, you know, uh, no profits by itself, not being bad, but coming out as a byproduct of leading, uh, a value driven life of, of trying to improve, um, you know, various stakeholders, uh, lives, you know, obviously customers, but also I think more importantly, starting with the employees and, and the environment and so on. So, uh, I, you know, I, I loved it. I, I really, really enjoyed, uh, hanging out with, uh, People from Whole Foods, uh, the senior management, the middle management. Um, I find I found myself um, in a good way uh, preaching to the choir in terms of the things that I uh, shared with them. They really resonated with them. Uh, I felt like I was part of a family, so it was very good. Awesome. Okay, so I want to transition to the lightning round. Okay. Questions that are designed to be read briefly. You can answer them as long as you want. Okay. First question, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Pause. <laughs> okay. Life is like a pause. Okay. Uh, what's the... Number two, what's the best news you've heard recently? The best news I heard recently was um, that I am going to be giving a bunch of talks um, to people who I think really need to hear this message of uh, what can make them happier. So um, these are people who are uh, living out the last uh, years of their life. And uh, they uh, are very curious about what the science of happiness has to say. So wow. we're thrilled and very grateful to be uh, to have the opportunity to talk to them. That's beautiful. Is that there in Austin or will that be? Yes, this, this is uh, in Austin. Wow, wonderful. Okay, uh, next question. What's something at which you wish you were better? Yeah, there's a lot of things that I wish that I was better at. One of the things that I wish I was very good at is uh, speaking multiple, multiple languages. 
I speak three uh, quite well. Um, I can understand uh, or, or can get by with another fourth one. But uh, I wish that I could speak as many as, you know, 20 or 30. Actually, you know, if I could speak them all, then that would be ideal. And the reason I say this is because um, I, I really love understanding cultures and people, right? Yeah. And um, language gives you so much more. It's like a window into another person's culture, right? Uh, if you understand what's going on, how they speak and what they're saying and how they think, wow, you know, that would like basically kind of make the whole world a stage for me uh, to, yeah. to go and, 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 uh, and, and to have a good time. Yeah, so that's what I would like to do. No, that's beautiful. I'm counting on Google just giving me that little babblefish. You know, we'll just do that. What uh, What are the three that you speak well now? Uh, English, uh, and then uh, Tamil, which is my mother tongue, and Hindi. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. Hindi is the most popular language in India, so I just wanted to yeah. teach. I heard there's like 800 different languages, like actually spoken, and many more or something. Is that you think is that true? Over 26 or some something like that languages, and then there are dialects maybe in the 800s. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, yeah. Wow. Okay, next question. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? So I've actually thought about this. Okay, there are two things that I could have the T-shirt say. Um, one thing that, I, this is a simpler one. The, this would say, the weather in my head is always sunny. Okay. Um, and this is more of an aspirational t-shirt rather than what's reality because I'm still working on it. Um, but the second t-shirt, and this is something that maybe, you know, because you're kind of from the business background, you can tell me if a t-shirt like this would sell. Um, so different people have different things that they like, right? I mean, uh, like, for example, for me, a uh, nice cold beer on a hot day, that's like awesome. Yeah. Um, I also like to kind of sleep in, right? Sure. And kind of wake up late. Okay. Sleeping in is, is a big thing for me. Okay. Um, then playing with my kids, right, is a big thing for me. Um, I love um, popping those bubbles on bubble wraps. Okay? <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's a bunch of things like this. Okay. So imagine that you have a T-shirt that has nothing like an ice cold beer on a hot, sunny day, right? Nothing like hanging out with my kids and so on. And then all of those would be like in lighter kind of shade of gray. And then in bright orange, uh, it says in much bolder, big letters, nothing like life. Okay. Mm. So that's the idea. So yeah. nothing like a lot of small things that happen to be idiosyncratically things that I like, but overall nothing like life. And everybody's got their own set of things that floats their boat, so to speak. I love it. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's great. If you ever make that shirt. I'll be your first customer. <laughs> yeah, the idea would be that you go to a website and then you fill in all these nothing like blanks and then okay. all of those, maybe 10 of them, and then all of those would be the background and then on top of it would say nothing like life. I love it. That's great. And I can imagine this could be one of those sites where there's like the upvoted and you choose which ones, right? This is, yeah, that's great. Awesome. Okay, next question. What book, and you've already mentioned one, so maybe this is it or maybe it's something different, but what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Oh, that's a good one. I think in the last two or three years, um, so it would really depend on, you know, when you ask me this question, but in the last two, year, two or three years, I would say that it's probably been Give or Take by Adam Grant. Mm. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. I've not read it, but I read the parts in your book where you mentioned some of what Adam shares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he'd be a great guy for your podcast. Uh, he's obviously very busy and all that. Uh, so maybe getting him uh, to commit sometime in the next, I don't know if you've um, asked him. I haven't yet. And if you know him and if, if you'd be willing to make an introduction, I would, I would love to invite him. Okay. But if not, that's fine too. <laughs> I, I no, he's one of those guys, you know, he, he, um, walks the talk, right? So he says that being kind and compassionate and nice to other people is super important, not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because it enhances your chances of success. And he actually, you know, I wrote to him out of the blue and he wrote a blurb for my book and he's been like really great. He wasn't able wow. to do an interview himself, but he proposed somebody else and that's what he might do with this too. So I, I don't wow. mind. Yeah, awesome. So that's the one though, recently is give, given, is it give or take, give and take? Give and Take, that Give came out take. in 2014. That was his first book. Uh, it's a masterpiece, in my opinion. And then I think uh, he's come out with two books. One is yeah. called oh. Originals. Yep. And that one's uh, also been very well received. And then Plan B, I think, with... Uh, yeah, with Cheryl Sandberg. Yeah, Cheryl yeah. Sandberg, yeah. Uh, is, it, is it Option option or Plan B? Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's Option B, yeah. Before two or three years ago, what might have been your answer to that question? Ah, okay. So, look, I mean, I have a little bit of um, interest in uh, kind of spirituality and, and those kinds of topics. And uh, there was a time when I was really taken in by this book called A Search in Secret India, A Search in Secret India by a guy called Paul Brunton. Uh, he wrote the book, I think, in 1930s, before the British had left India. He ends up at the ashram of uh, one of the spiritual kind of gurus, uh, big gurus at that of that time. His name is Ramana Maharishi, Ramana Maharishi, and uh, just uh, a bunch of kind of his sort of experience. It's like a travelogue almost, but written by a spiritual guy who's in the quest for discovering, uh, you know, life's kind of answering big questions, uh, and so. Um, I got to know more about Ramana Maharishi through reading that book than through what my parents and other people had told me about him. So it's not really a biography of Ramana Maharishi. If anything, it's a kind of biography of uh, Paul Brunton. A very fascinating book. I, I really liked it. That sounds like something I would enjoy. Um, I, I, I just told my wife maybe six months ago, I said, um, part, partly to give myself something to look forward to, right? Like consciously inventing a future to live into. I said, um, because I love to walk. I do a 50 mile walk every year here in Salt Lake. We do 50 mile walk. Yeah. 50 miles in 20 hours. So I'm, I'm fond of kind of these extreme challenges or unusual feats. And, uh, so I said to my wife just last year, Probably I said, like 20 contiguous continuous hours. Yeah. Okay. So, so do you, do you already know when you're going to do it this year? Yeah. So we do it the Saturday after Labor Day. We've penciled that in. I think it's the 8th or 9th of September. And, uh, when you say we, who all go, go on this walk? You know, every year I invite just friends and family and people that I think, you know, that I've been kind of meeting and, and mixing with recently. And uh, most people that do it will, it's a one and done, you know, if they even finish. But um, yeah, if you're interested, I'll be sure to keep you on my, my notification. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me know. Uh, yeah. So have you heard of a, a movie called The Way? No. So have you heard of this, uh, what is the thing called? The Compostela, the Santi. Uh, I always kind of get the name uh, mixed up. Uh, so this is um, a kind of a pilgrimage that uh, for a very long time, a lot of Christians have taken uh, from starting from near Barcelona, going all the way to Compostela. Uh, I think that's the name of the place. Um, so Santiago de Compostela or something. Okay, so just Google it and check out this movie called The Way. The Way with Martin Sheen and um, 
his son, Emilio Estevez, his son. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Martin Sheen. Then had Charlie Sheen, I believe, is his son, and Emilio Estevez, her brothers. I think. Yeah. So, so check that movie. I think you'll like it. Cool. Uh, and it'll give you a little bit of an idea of uh, what I'm talking about. So this is an yeah. eight kilometer path. So I, I, the reason I bring it up is because you know I want to do that walk, and uh, you know maybe I can convince you to kind of like shift uh, geographies a little bit and go to Europe. Sounds amazing. Like section hiking over like ten years, you know, uh, wow. fifty miles. Sounds cool. Yeah, I'll, de- I'll definitely check it out because because the thing I told my wife is I said when I turn sixty, I want to walk across India. Oh yeah. Just okay, what do you mean across India from where to where? Well, I thought I would start from south, like Tamil, to the Himalayas, but I actually think I'd probably go the other way. Good for uh, you. Yeah, so that's that's my plan. And um, so this book, uh, Search in Secret India, that could be good. I know it was a long time ago, but that could be good uh, kind of preparation. And and I think Maharishi wasn't – he was uh, Vivekananda's teacher. No, that is Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. Okay, so Ramakrishna. And who, who's the guy that? Okay. Uh, Ramana Maharishi, um, yeah, interesting guy. He was he was only in the south uh, from Tamil Nadu, which is where I'm from, um, and um, ended up uh, kind of you know, I, I guess he didn't want to do it, but I mean, he ended up founding this ashram uh, in a in a place called. Uh, yeah, I'm blanking on the name of the place, but it's it's close to Chennai. Have you heard of Chennai? Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. You've been there. Okay, okay. Yeah, I did um, Sadhguru's rally for rivers with him. Okay, uh, all right. Yeah, a year ago, October. I did half of it. Okay. Uh, two, week, two weeks, so visited quite quite a few. But okay, so I've totally taken us off course from the lightning round. I'm going to bring us back. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Um, so you travel a ton. What's one travel hack, something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your tra- travel less painful or more enjoyable? Okay, so I have several travel hacks. Uh, I would say that one of the uh, important ones for me is uh, to take some melatonin with me. And I pop it um, on the flight uh, just before I want to go to sleep, uh, half an hour before it. And then um, maybe have a glass of wine, maybe two. (laughs) Um, And then it knocks me out. Okay, Um, And then I wake up and I feel good to go wherever I land. Okay, uh, so part of that is also that I try and choose flights that will put me in the next morning in the next place, wherever I go to. Uh, now, this will only work if the travel time is at least six hours or so. Okay, if it's less than that, then I have a different, I don't, I don't do this. Um, the other thing that I do is uh, that I, I try to check myself into a hotel with a nice gym. Okay, that's one of my requirements is that, you know, for me, uh, a healthy lifestyle um, is, is quite critical for me. Uh, and if I don't have it, then everything else falls apart. So I need to sleep well. I need to eat well. I need to exercise well. And so the exercising part, so I, I, I kind of choose a hotel. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I also say, you know, I must say that I've been lucky that in the um, last five years or so, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to afford to travel by business class. And, you know, if if that is something that is... Um, Within the realm of possibility for somebody, then I would I would suggest considering it because uh, it does imp- vastly improve uh, your experience once you land. And I know that it feels like a waste of money, like you know spending three times as much, maybe five times sometimes as much uh, traveling by business class as it does. And you think that you know this is just travel, and you know how can it be that important? Why should I spend so much? But uh, to me, at least, it makes a big difference. Um, so. Yeah. But I'm also tall. You know, I'm like six feet two. So. Uh, 
you know, for maybe shorter people, uh, it's not that, that big a deal. Yeah. And uh, lastly, I guess, uh, I don't know if you want, it's okay for me to talk about one last one, but I, I would Please. say that uh, just um, traveling lightly, you know, uh, I think that if you um, can figure out, okay, here are the number of days that I'm going to be there. And here are exactly the numbers of underwear that I want, I need, uh, and figuring out if, you know, there's a potential for getting laundry done. And here are the number of PJs I need. And here are the number of you know, socks I need and so on. And just taking that amount, maybe one extra, that's it. And and packing well, um, because traveling light really kind of comes in handy, I think. And uh, by the way, in nearly 30 interviews, those are things that no guest has said. Really? Some of, some of them, yeah. Oh, okay. So that, uh, thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what, next question, what is one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Mm. Okay. So um, I, one thing that I've, I've uh, stopped doing is uh, over drinking. Okay. Um, I think that there was a time when I was very prone to um, consuming a lot of alcohol uh, it put put me in a good space temporarily um, and just uh, wasn't good for me uh, the next day and overall for my life. Okay, I, I wasn't by any stretch of the imagination uh, an alcoholic or anything like that, but it just I would just go with the flow, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'd kind of make a tentative plan of maybe like having three, four drinks. And then like, you know, by the time I was like, um, and, and no more than that, but by the time I had three or four drinks in me, um, I, my perspective would have changed and, you know, I would, I'd be like grooving, you know, maybe dancing to the music or whatever. And then before I knew it, I was like five, six, eight down, you know? So, and then I would be a heavy price the next day. So that's something that I, I don't uh, do as much. Uh, not necessarily with the aim of aging well, I would say. It just um, partly doesn't sit well with me and I, I it's kind of pointless now, you know, to, to even go there. Uh, that's what I feel. Um, but I've also started um, in the last about three, four years uh, taking supplements. Um, and I don't know to what extent they work or don't, but um, maybe they have, just have a placebo effect and I feel good. But uh, it's kind of an experiment that I'm trying out. And uh, so I'll tell you, I mean, I take about five supplements. I take omega-3, okay? I take vitamin D. Um, I take vitamin C. Okay, omega-3, vitamin D, vitamin C. And then I take um, uh, spirulina. Okay, I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, I've heard of it. What does it. What do you take it for? What benefit does it give so you? So I think it's an alkaline thing. And, you know, we, we tend to be acidic in our uh, eating habits. And so it kind of neutralizes. Okay, that's my understanding. I did this research a while back. Okay. <laughs> yeah. and, and I've kind of forgotten now exactly what these things do, but I've been taking them for a while. Uh, and finally, I take um, uh, green tea, green tea extract, which uh, has some antioxidant properties or something like that, you know, and uh, it's a kind of a boost of caffeine as well. So I take all of all of these five things in the morning, um, oh. right with my breakfast. So we'll see. Okay, if I live to be 120, uh, we can have the stock. Yeah, and 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 no multivitamin. Yeah, the uh, two vitamins that are there, vitamin D and vitamin C. Um, are the important ones. And I, I take those for now. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Um, I, I would say that a lot of Americans know this, right? But a lot more Americans don't know this, uh, that America is not the center of the world, you know? What? Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't look. I mean, I love America, right? I love Americans. I think this is the best country in the world. Okay. Uh, um, and oftentimes, I think this is something that the non-Americans need to learn. You know, everybody likes to beat down on America and say that you know they're a bunch of ignorance and they're self-centered and you know all they know is their own country and so on. And you know, people stop appreciating the fact that you know this is the most immigrant-friendly country the world has ever seen ever seen, right? Ever seen. So, um, and I think it's very important to put that in perspective and, and recognize that first. But having said that, I think that if Americans, I think Americans are basically great people, all of them, you know, uh, and a lot of them obviously have traveled a lot. I think, you know, I, I don't know the stats on this, but if you take a look at um, the number of people from any country as a pro proportion of the number of people that uh, live in the country who have traveled abroad, I imagine America would, would be in the top 10. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know what the stats are. but So it is a well-traveled country, and I happen to um, inhabit a world in which I meet a lot of them. But uh, it's also true that a lot of Americans don't go out. You know, I've heard some stats like only 10% of Americans have passports or something like that. You know, I don't know what the stats are on that, but it's a surprisingly low number. Um, and I think that if Americans just traveled out more, they'd recognize that... Um, you know, uh, that, that we live in a world that um, is deeply interconnected. And, and there's just no way to just have this be a separate country that, you know, you live by your own rules and you demand things out of people from other countries. And, you know, and um, uh, that just America could be very prosperous. And, you know, even if it comes at a cost to other people's prosperity, it's no longer that world, at least, you know. So yeah. I think that recognition and that fear that the rest of the world is out to get America and all that would also go away a little bit. And I think that other people would get to understand Americans better. It'd just be a win-win-win all around, in my opinion, if just more Americans traveled outside of America. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So, okay, I want to put this here to make sure that I get to it. But if people want to connect with you or they want to learn more from you, what should they do? Yeah, uh, so they can write to me. Um, my email is raj at happysmarts.com. And that's R-A-J. Yeah, R-A-J at H-A-P-P-Y-S-M-A-R-T-S, happysmarts.com. Um, and I usually am good at responding, um, but I've also had some people write to me uh, telling me that I tried writing to you earlier and I haven't heard from you, so I'm um, making a second attempt. So... Uh, I apologize uh, if I'm not able to return your email immediately, but uh, my intention is to. And if I don't, if you don't hear from me in a couple of days, please feel free to write back to me again. Um, and I try to get back to everybody, but that's the way to contact me. Yeah, awesome. And and then people can visit your website at happysmarts.com. Uh, people, of course, can find your book uh, on Amazon or a, pretty much any online retailer, or hopefully as well in their local bookstore. Yeah. Right. While they still exist. So that's great. <laughs> okay. And then the other thing that I want to say here to make sure that I get it in is um, that as an expression of gratitude to you, Raj, for making time to share your experience and, and your wisdom with me and everyone who's listening, um, I've made a small gesture by going online to kiva.org and I've made a micro loan to uh, a 49-year-old woman named Sarabai who happens to live in the Kutch district of Gujarat. Uh, she's engaged in the dairy business. She sells milk, ghee, curd, butter in her locality. And, and so uh, anyway, it's just a small uh, attempt at showing, uh, paying it forward a little bit. Um, oh, that's awesome. That's really wonderful. Wonderful gesture. Yeah. 
Well, thank you. Okay, so the last part, we've got just a few questions. I've got just a few questions for you related to writing. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're willing to just switch gears one final time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Awesome. Okay. So let's see. I have a few I want to be sure to ask, but before I ask anything, if I ask you when it comes to writing and, and remembering that part of what I'm endeavoring to do with this podcast is to give anyone listening a little bit of inspiration and a little bit of practical tools that they can use to help them complete the, any project they're in the middle of. It might be a writing project. It might be some other kind of creative project, but uh, let's stay focused on writing for now, at least what, what is, what have you learned about writing that has served you well? I, I think this might be a bit of a cliche to people who are um, aware of uh, some of the kind of best practices in this, which is to um, just write, just do it, you know, uh, and carve out some time and uh, don't kind of try to second guess whether you're in a good mood or you're going to have a writer's block or or whatever. Just carve out, say, three hours, even if it's not that much time, even if it's just half an hour, one hour, whatever, you know, but a regular time of the day when you're going to do it, Okay. And I would say that as you're thinking about that time, uh, you know, try and make it a time of the day when uh, it's what I call your cream time. That is the time of the day when you're you're uh, mentally sharpest and uh, you're able to think well and you're able to engage in nuanced, creative um, kind of thinking. Okay. And there's a book called When by Daniel Pink, who talks a little bit about the circadian rhythms and um, how different people have their peak performance during the day at different times of the day. For me, it happens to be between, I'd say, 8 a.m. and, and 11 a.m. Uh, in, in that window. Um, and so the more of that time I devote to the more important stuff, and if writing is important to you, you want to, whatever it is, right? I mean, you said, let's take writing as an example. But if you just carve that time out for that activity um, and just do it, you know, and, and not compromise on that and close your emails, um, get your phone off the hook, you know, switch off, put your phone in airplane mode, close the door uh, to your office, just sit down and be disciplined about it. Uh, I think that's the single best thing you can do for yourself. What is your writing kryptonite? <laughs> so um, kryptonite is, uh, remind me, it's uh, something that, that is my Achilles heel. So this is, um, it's a term from popular culture where Superman, who is basically in, in vulner- like he's invulnerable, he's invincible, but if he's exposed to this one substance, it will totally just compromise his strength and effectiveness. So what kind of trips you up when it comes to writing? What compromises your good intentions and your efficacy and, and all this when it comes to writing? What's your, what's your writing kryptonite? Yeah. So um, for me, uh, I need to be in a good headspace, right? I, I think this would be true for everybody, uh, not just for writing, but any important stuff. If I want to have a important, crucial conversation with somebody, right? Uh, I think I need to be in a, in a good headspace. And um, what um, is lots of things that can, you know, kind of derail me from that and, and push me off that good headspace ledge, so to speak. But one of the things that, you know, the more common thing that does that is um, just um, not getting enough sleep the previous night, okay? Um, and if I've not gotten enough sleep, I don't feel as mentally sharp. I don't feel as centered. I don't feel that I'm in the good good headspace. And relatedly, another thing that also kind of, you know, is a kryptonite, I guess, is uh, just having too many things, you know, on my plate. 
uh, and not feeling relaxed, not having that sense of time abundance that you mentioned. Um, so those are the two things. Th- those are related, but those are the things that uh, are my kryptonites. So when it comes to that, about having that good, you know, that mental space that's conducive to writing, do you find, is that something that you've just kind of got to wait until it comes along? Or have you found something that's reliably effective in creating it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I guess, not ironic, but uh, um, I don't know what the word is, but basically the things that I talk about in my book, right, the, as the habits of the highly happy all of those things are very conducive for me to feel good about writing, to put me in a good headspace. So, for example, if I'm not chasing superiority, right, uh, which is a sin, which is a happiness sin, but in the context of writing, if I'm not trying to write with this idea that, well, I want my book to be the bestseller, you know, I mean, I want everybody to be impressed at how I'm writing or whatever. I want this to be the best ever book, the last word on happiness. And my thoughts are not there, but rather my thoughts are more on, okay, let me just get down to the process. The process is it, right? I mean, I just sit down from nine to 12 and I just try to crank it out and do the best I can. And what I've discovered is for me, uh, I think this is true for everybody. uh, It's an iterative process. You know, you don't just sit down and everything flows and people say this for some people, maybe it's true, but it never happened to me that I just sit down. Okay. Occasionally you, you get into a good zone and then you write two or three pages and, and they're more or less perfect, right? But by and large, what happens to me is that I have to go back to it and revise it and refine it and then come back to it and do the same thing again. It's the 20th iteration that I'm really satisfied with. So um, that's what I would say that uh, is then, is another tip which goes along with, you know, this, this protecting your cream time and finding a time of the day when you write is that tell yourself that, look, I mean, this is going to take a while. You know, this is going to be refined again and again and again. And it's in that process that you you end up with a good product in the end. But to this question, I would say that, you know, all of these habits of the highly happy, for me, the foundation of a happy lifestyle and everything flows from that is uh, for happiness is leading a healthy lifestyle, you know, which means eating well, exercising and sleeping, sleeping well. You know, if you don't have that as a foundation, then um, forget about being happy, you know, because I mean, you're not at a cellular level, you're not feeling good from the inside. Um, then, you know, how can you, Expect how can you aspire to be happy at the mental level, you know, if your body is not feeling happy. So that's where I would start. And that's fundamental to writing well as well for me is to lead a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, no, it just, it just makes so much sense. And it's, it's congruent with my experience as well. Um, will you walk me through what it looks like or what it looked like for you to go from concept to completion with this book? I know that's a big question, but how did you settle on the idea? How did you begin the outlining? How did you begin the drafting? How did you remain organized through that process? How did the editing? I mean, anything that kind of feels appropriate, if you were just to give me, you know, a succinct summary of what was the process like? Uh, I think there's a quote by one of these authors, I forget which author, but he said something like, you know, writing a book like is like driving in the dark with just your headlights on and you just see the next thing that you want to write about. And in the end, uh, you know, if you're going and following a roadmap, you end up at your destination. Um, And so it's kind of like that for me, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, well, I know that I I had clarity on, on the broad topic um, that uh, it was about happiness. I also had a broad objective, which is to kind of distill the science and give people some recommendations that they, they would find useful. 
uh, I knew who my target audience was, um, which was smart and successful people, and yet not very happy, perhaps. And all those were there. But I mean, in terms of how to um, structure the book and where to start and where to end and what to have in between and all that, you know, all those are very much um, iterative. Like I said, I I, I would have probably um, you know um, written. Uh, I want to say I'm not kidding. You know, when I say this about. 300 versions of the book or 300 iterations, you wow. know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just a lot. I mean, it took me six years uh, to complete the book uh, and other people are different. And of course, you know, I, I still don't think it's perfect. Um, and, you know, now if I were to look back on it, one of the fundamental errors that I made is that it, it made it too long uh, for people who are smart and successful. Uh, and I, I, I know this because you know I talk about it in the book. They are, Frenzied, harried people were very, very short on time. And so, you know, if as a good marketer, I should recognize that first and make it really short, you know, maybe like five chapters or something, which I did not. Um, that's where yeah, I think that to some extent my, my idealism got in the way and I wanted to make the book, you know, put in all the things that I thought were very, very important and useful. And this is for the authentic seeker is how I convinced myself to make it as long. Anyway, so um, what I would say is that um, Recognize it's going to be iterative. Doesn't mean that you know you postpone the structuring of the book to later. It's just that whatever you think the structure is today, go with it uh, with the flexibility and the open mind that it might change later and almost invariably will. Uh, and um, once you have a broad structure, as soon as you encounter any stimulus in the world that is consistent or that is going to be useful for that uh, any part of the structure, just embed it into that part so like you know so i would say open up folders and subfolders and say that okay this is chapter 1 this is going to be introduction uh, on why happiness is important for smart and successful people so anytime you you hear in the news that you know smart people are not very happy or you know how fame can lower your happiness you, let's say you hear it on npr you just download that and then put it into that folder you know for later use um and and do that uh, diligently all the way to the end because you might say, oh, you know, my introduction chapter is almost written and, you know, it's, it's, it's complete almost. And now I hear this thing, uh, news program that's relevant to that chapter. And how am I going to be able to incorporate it? So I won't even bother putting it in. No, don't do that. You know, just put it in. Maybe it'll come in handy later. And maybe you uh, will end up revising the chapter, even though you think that it's complete now. Uh, so that's the idea. So as and when you see things that are going to be relevant for your book, just embed them into the folder or the subfolder. This in turn calls for being organized on your folder, right? Or on your computer, uh, which I think is very, very important. And one of the things that helps me, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are aware of this uh, thing called Dropbox, right? Um, where uh, you can kind of save things on the cloud. That way it doesn't matter where you're working from. Uh, you're able to access the same set of folders and files. And so you put everything in and, and so it's organized. And then you can go back and then uh, revisit these things and then figure out what to put where. One thing I've discovered is that, you know, the really great books, and this is one of the other ways in which I think my book can, can be improved, is that although I have, like you said, a lot of personal examples and stories, I don't have a lot of um, examples of other people's stories. That's what really, I think, gets a reader uh, really interested. Is that if I were to talk about, okay, let me tell you what happened when Steve Jobs was 12 years old, right? Um, as he was walking down, from his home to the Hare Krishna, whatever, you know. Um, so that, uh, and particularly if these are examples that are um, very interesting examples and powerful examples, but not too many people knew of them, um, of, uh, you know, people that they know, 
uh, like Steve Jobs, that would really kind of, that that's what gets them. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell's a master of that. Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant for that matter, right? I mean, yeah. that's one of the reasons why I think his book is a masterpiece. So that, that takes a lot of work, you know, that, uh, you know, takes this kind of work that I'm talking about, where as soon as you hear a story, you hear of, of a person, of a somebody mentioning a name, that this is what happened to them. And then you hear, oh, yeah, you know, what happened to Brian Miller? Do you know that? And then I say, okay, fine. I mean, it happened to him. It's very relevant to my book. Let me sit down and interview Brian Miller. And then I get it from you. And then um, I weave that in into the book, right? So that's the way to do it. Yeah. So that is a very high level of organization and, and diligence. And I heard you say that you worked on this book for six years. What was your writing routine like over that period? And because I hear six years and, and, and especially if I imagine myself as a listener, that's simultaneously like encouraging, like, oh yeah, you know, it is a journey, but then it's discouraging like six years, <laughs> you know? Hey, yeah, it does, doesn't uh, have to take six years for somebody else. Uh, it, it did for me. Um, and you have to remember that, you know, I, when I started teaching this course on happiness in 2009, I started writing the book in 2010. Um, there was no book out there on this topic, right? And so I discovered that I was putting all this material together in a way that nobody, as far as I knew, had done. And so that, that's what led me to even contemplate writing the book. Um, for other people, they might already know quite a lot about what they want to write about, and it's already kind of there in their head. So it's different, you know, it might not take that long. Um, but I think what is in general um, true is that it's going to take longer than you expect it to. <laughs> I, it, I expected it to take two years. Uh, it took me six years. And what's also true that is that it's going to be iterative and you're going to change your mind on things as you ought to. I think that if you're stuck on things, uh, then that's not a good sign. You know, um, you've got to revise and evolve and uh, be open to changes. Um, and and those things are true, uh, even if you know, uh, you know, in, in good detail what you want to write about and what the book is going to be about. Tell me about where, and this assumes one did, but tell me about where a book proposal entered into the equation for you. That's good. Yeah. So what happened with me is that I started blogging for Psychology Today in March of 2011. Okay, I started writing the book somewhere in 2010, um, July maybe of 2010, and then March of 2011, I started blogging for Psychology Today. And then um, a guy uh, called Eric Nelson uh, just approached me out of the blue. You know, he just uh, wrote me an email saying that I, I've read one of your articles and I really like it. And I'm wondering if you're in the process of writing a book. And I said, yes, you know, I am in fact. And who are you? You know, how can you help? And he said, look, I am uh, used to be an agent and uh, now I'm, sorry, I used to be a editor at a publishing house at Penguin, I believe he said. And now I'm an agent because I think that the agents are not doing as good a job as they could. And so I'm just starting out and I was wondering if uh, I, you know, uh, I could be your agent because I think that you write well. And uh, I said, sure. Yeah. And he said, then, you know, we got to kind of put this proposal together. Um, and uh, I said, what goes into the proposal? And he said, well, you know, a couple of sample chapters and then what he called, you know, some kind of evidence of your platform. At that point, I didn't know all these things, right? He said, you know, do you have a following and and all that? And I said, look, I'm blogging for psychology today, but that's it. Um, I don't really have a following. But he really helped me put this proposal together. Uh, he helped me hone my, refine my chapters. Um, and um, also... Um, kind of helped me think through uh, how the book 
that I was intending to write is going to be different from other books that exist out there and so on. And so that's what, you know, really kind of um, jump-started it. At that point, you know, I had no idea who was going to publish it when I first started writing the book. And if he had not come into my world, uh, I don't know how things would have evolved. You know, I would have, I guess, reached out to some agent at some point. But yeah, uh, yeah that's how it transpired. So how clear were you of what you wanted the book to be and do? Because I hear you say you didn't, you know, have an agent, you didn't have a specific, you know, like a plan with a publisher and that kind of thing. But, but as you were writing, and this, this question maybe relates also to the, li- to the reader, how, how conscious were you of the reader during the actual act of writing? And how clear were you about what you wanted the book to do for, or even to that reader? Mm. Okay, that's a great question. Uh, so, the way that I wrote the book, and this may not be the best way to write a book, right? I don't know. Okay. Now I've never been asked a question that you asked me. So uh, I'm just kind of, you know, telling you honestly what, what went on in my head is I was writing in a way that I felt that if I were to read this book, I want to be interested in the book. I want me, Raj, um, needs to find this book to be interesting. So I was trying to write to me as the audience, as opposed to imagining a Brian out there or imagining somebody smart and successful out there. Okay. Um, Having said that, I, uh, you know, I've been teaching this class for a while now, right? I mean, because like in six years that it took for me to write the book, I'd already begun teaching a year or two before I'd started the book even. So I'd had quite a bit of experience under my belt. So I knew which concepts were appealing to the people and which concepts were important to the people. But that had to do with the content, the style of the writing. Uh, I really was trying to target myself. You know, would Raj find this to be interesting, to be engaging, to be funny, um, to be logical, and so on? But in terms of the content, I vetted it in my class. So, so I guess I mean my my situation is unique, right? I, I or at least different from most people's. Uh, most people I imagine would be writing a book and just writing a book, right? I mean, not really making presentations as much as I do because that's my job. Uh, I yeah. have to teach every day. So I can actually test out the content um, with my target audience and then use that experience to kind of uh, inform what I put in the book, right? Um, so I don't know if that... Uh, yeah, that's a great... I mean, that's a great situation. And although people might not necessarily be teaching a course, I suspect some people listening to this will be and others might be able to look at how they could create a situation, whether it's invite a group of beta readers or, you know, maybe members of a book club that they're already in or something and create that kind of community that gives them that real, real time, you know, that real world feedback. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I have found, you know, maybe this is just idiosyncratic to me, but I've found that actually kind of making a PowerPoint presentation on a topic is a great way to um, distill what's important and what's not and give the, um, the story is structure. Yeah. Because if you have to present this content, let's say a chapter's content in 20 minutes um, uh, through a PowerPoint presentation, uh, that really forces you to think through, okay, what's going to be the beginning? What's going to be the motivating story, I say, to, to introduce the concept? And what's going to uh, be the set of uh, data that I provide to um, to, to buttress or, or to um, uh, show proof for the things that I'm saying? And then how do I want to end? You know, When you write... Music or no music? No music. No music. Uh, no distractions. For me, I mean, I know that other people are different. Um, even if there's music playing, it can't have words. Um, it has to be light volume. 
in the background. Uh, but ideally, no music. Do you like to write in a solitary manner or do you like to be in a public place where there's activity like a cafe or an airport or something? What's your preference? Uh, so I, I prefer to be solitary. I, in fact, <clears throat> I prefer my desk right here. You know, <clears throat> I can't even work that well at home, I feel. But having said that, uh, sometimes I'm forced to write in an airport or, you know, in a cafeteria or somewhere else at a hotel lobby. And I've discovered that I've actually been quite impressed or, you know, happy with how well I'm able to focus and, and zone in uh, to my book. So I would say that now, um, because, of, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, they say. So, so I've been forced to, um, uh, to, to work in those kind of circumstances. And I've discovered that I'm actually not bad at it. But my preference is to work from my desk. Caffeine or no caffeine? Caffeine, but not like huge amounts, you know, just one cup of coffee in the morning and then maybe one midday and that's it. Very disciplined. No, I mean, I, it, it, uh, you know, caffeine kind of uh, makes me jittery after like, you know, three cups. So just not a question of discipline. It's just. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense. What's the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Ah, that's a great question. What's the best money that. That I've ever spent. Okay, so I, I think um, I spent a, a significant amount. I would say to the tune of about five thousand uh, dollars, just getting a person to read the book and give me kind of broad comments on just a lay person who's a good copy editor of sorts. Um, and uh, she was very good, uh, and she gave me kind of broad comments on uh, whether the thing was flowing well and everything. Um, How did you find her? Ah, uh, trying to remember now. I think that one of my friends recommended her to me. One of my friends recommended her to me. So that was one. And the other thing that I I think also was good is you know we talked about this earlier. This paid forward thingy. So yeah. I bought a a bunch of copies. I want to say five hundred copies or something of my own book, uh, just so that I could put in the seed number of books, so that it could self perpetuate. Uh, but I was the starting point. So that was a, a you know that was a good good amount to spend or good. Uh, expense. Um, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? Hmm. So I don't know if I can say that, you know, just by looking at a sentence, you can say that it's a great sentence. You know, I think it's context dependent. Um, sometimes um, just one word sentence can be a great sentence because it's come at the right time. Um, and other times it needs to be a longer sentence and so on. But I would say that in general, if you want to kind of follow something, uh, you know, one of the things that Malcolm Gladwell said is uh, that I, I've been told that I write in a way that even an eighth grader can understand really well. And I take that as a compliment, you know, and I think that that's important. And that is, I think, uh, you, you know, one of the unique contributions of American writers, uh, unlike the British, is that uh, the British are more flowery and kind of, you know, pompous, if that's the word, in, in how they write. And Americans, you know, kind of made it so simple that anybody, even if somebody is not very educated, but so long as they could read, could could pick up a book and be entertained and engaged by it. And I, I like that, you know. And I think um, for me, that's the important thing, is that is it is it, um, is it plain, simple English? Is it expressed in a way uh, that it's in its simplest form? Or are you using words for the sake of kind of showing off your vocabulary. You know, if it's a latter, then that's not good writing to me. 
It was to go back real quick, by the way, it was um, E.L. Doctorow who said, writing is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's really, good. That's awesome. Yeah. Really appropriate. So what piece of technology has helped you in your writing that you wouldn't want to live without? Mm. I mean, of course, aside from the computer, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, this, I don't know if you would consider this to be part of the technology, but, you know, my, my smartphone um, and a specific kind of uh, feature or app of the smartphone, which is the notes app. Um, what I do, like I said, sometime back is that when I was writing the book, I was doing this obviously more often, but as soon as I um, got in touch with a concept or, you know, heard a piece of news or met somebody that was relevant to a certain chapter or a certain uh, construct or concept, <clears throat> I would just make a note of that uh, in my notes pages. And I'd have these different, you know, the seven habits and seven sins and seven exercises. And then uh, under each of those headings, I just put on like a little bullet point saying that, you know, Brian Miller for this, this concept. Uh, and, and then also just to kind of make sure that I remembered why I put your name down, because like, you know, a month later, I, I, sometimes you don't know why you put that down. Um, so I just have a little small three or four word explanation for why. Okay. And uh, I think uh, that's awesome that we have that, um, that we are able to kind of, you know, for somebody who's like very disorganized, like I am very disorganized, uh, without this technology, uh, I think I would have been completely lost. You know, I see some people kind of still carrying around um, notebooks and writing in notebooks, and, and they, they can manage that, and they're good at it. Uh, I've never been that type. But because I have to carry my phone everywhere, just because, you know, I need to be in touch, uh, and it comes with this notes pages, uh, it really doubles up, and, and that, that part of technology is awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. It's always with you. If If you lost it, it's in the cloud. Right. And we talk a lot, as we have in this conversation, about artificial intelligence, but I'm so interested in IA, intelligence amplification. And this is, in a way, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's beautiful. Okay. So, last, last couple questions. One is um, Who is a teacher that has made a difference for you when it comes to writing? And what have you learned from them that others could maybe learn from them through you? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I. This book, and if I write another book, I imagine that book would be in the genre of um, kind of researchers writing in a way that makes um, research findings accessible to the public, right? That, that genre, business, popular writing genre, whatever you want to call it. And in that space, now there's a lot of people, but you know, 10, 15 years back, there weren't really a lot of people. You know, I, I would say that Malcolm Gladwell perhaps started that whole genre at some level. Um, others would disagree and say, maybe point out to somebody else who came before him, but um, he's not even an academic himself, right? But he writes in a way that uh, takes some academic work and then translates it into a language that most people find uh, relatable to. Uh, but, you know, for me as an academic, I really looked up to Dan Ariely. I don't know if you've come across him. or Yeah, predictably irrational. Yeah, yeah. yeah. honest truth about dishonesty. Uh, I still think that, you know, my book is nowhere close to his level of writing. And that's partly because I think um, he just has more interesting of his, his own experiments that he talks about. Okay. Now, he mostly talks about his own stuff. Um, whereas my, you know, I just don't have that level of productivity that he has research wise uh, to just focus on only my things, whereas he could. Um, 
but uh, you know he's just brilliant in terms of explaining concepts and being funny and and just a great storyteller. You know, <clears throat> so I like him a lot. I also love Adam Grant. Um, and um, you know, both Adam and and Malcolm Gladwell. You brought up this uh, Malcolm as an example of a guy who does that, right? The the idea of knowing a lot of uh, stories of the world in, that happen in the world, interesting stories that are very very connected with the central point he wants to make. You know, that marriage of those two things. You know, it's not yeah. just random interesting stories. It's interesting stories that are relevant to the point he wants to make. Yeah, and that you know, when you read it, it sounds so beautiful and simple. Right, of course, you know, this this relates. But for him to be able to unearth those stories in the first place and then be able to articulate those stories in a way that's simple to understand and then connect it up to this research, piece of research, is just brilliant, you know. Um, and uh, so uh, those are my kind of writing heroes. Um, yeah. I, I'd say that rather than read my book, I would say go and ro- read those books. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've tried to kind of distill some of those in my own language, I would say. But uh, I, I don't think I'm anywhere close to where they are. Yeah. Well, I think you're pretty good. I mean, comparison is the thief of joy, as Roosevelt tells us. But uh, for what it's yeah, worth. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I'm not comparing myself. Uh, look, I mean, my, my aim is not to uh, self-flagellate or, you know, uh, any, anything of that sort. I, I'm just being honest about where I think I am and where, how their writing is. Yeah. And not to say that, you know, um, I've not been authentic or that I can't improve. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's possible that some people read my book and say, I actually prefer your writing, right? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, I do. I, th- I think so. But that, that reminds me a couple of years ago when the Lego movie came out and the trailer said, if you see one movie this summer, see Star Wars. But if you see two movies, see the Lego movie. <laughs> so, really okay. That's awesome. All right. Last, um, last question. I think this is my last question. Um. I am interested actually in your rituals. So maybe two last questions. What rituals do you observe uh, when it comes to writing or routines? Do you have any habits, anything that you do, you know, before you sit down, as you sit down, after you sit, anything like that? Like light a candle, brew some tea, like wear your favorite slippers, something, any, anything at all like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I, I think of my uh, writing actually, uh, you know, any of my serious work. So the book I, I kind of, you know, wrote, uh, a while back, but now, you know, I'm working on my research papers and all that, that also involves a lot of writing. And sometimes it's data analysis or sitting down to formulate a questionnaire, any of this stuff. Uh, I would say that, you know, this is not directly rituals, but it's very important for me to have a, a lifestyle that is conducive for that. You know, we've already talked about it, this healthy lifestyle and so on. Um, but more narrowly, when it comes to the actual work, uh, are there some rituals? Yes, I, I think that um, for me, I, I find myself in a good headspace, uh, wanting to do this kind of stuff better when I'm at my desk at my office, as opposed to somewhere else. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, again, I mean, it's not exactly a ritual, but you know, rather than working somewhere else, I just come here and then I close my door. I switch off all my, um, kind of, you know, smart smartphone and, um, email, uh, I close it so that, you know, I don't have, uh, any disruptions basically. Okay. And the reason I close my door too, which is a little bit antisocial, I suppose, but it's because I don't want people to kind of just walk in and start engaging me in a conversation when I'm deep in a flow of a certain task. Uh, it's very disruptive for me. And I, I find it, it, it takes some time for me to jumpstart myself up. Okay. Um, but 
what I uh, do then is um, I, I kind of take mini breaks uh, at points that I feel like I need to reward myself because I've kind of finished one cycle or come to a logical point of uh, taking a break. And uh, those breaks and the rewards I give myself, which could be like you know a, a small cup of coffee or going and chatting with a colleague if they're up for it, or things like that, um, or or you know going and eating a little donut, whatever, right? I mean, I really do that now. But um, so those uh, breaks are kind of weaved in as uh, just ways of kind of like you know refreshing myself, but also giving myself a little bit of a reward. Okay, so those I, I would say are the kind of rituals to the extent that the, you count them as rituals. Um, yeah. But otherwise, I do, do not have a whole lot. What's your relationship with procrastination and how do you overcome it or how do you avoid it if you do? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> everybody procrastinates, right? I mean, even like, you know, like I was talking about Dan Ariely, who's like extremely productive uh, on multiple dimensions, you know, writing books and writing articles and giving talks and so on. And he procrastinates, he says. So everybody does. I know that I do. Um, so, uh, I, 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 you know, it's not the case that I don't. But um, what I've discovered is that if I have a bunch of things on my list, right, uh, I, I have a very active things to do list and I maintain it very, very, you know, diligently. Um, I try and block this nine to 12 time in the morning for my important stuff. Okay. But, um, it, sometimes I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like writing. Okay. Um, and I'll still give it a try. I'll give it a shot. And there'll be occasionally maybe, you know, 5% of the time when I just feel like, no, this is just not going anywhere, right? Then I'll just go to other items on my things to do list, okay? And um, I'll, I'll pick some items that are pleasant that I, I feel emotionally positive about. Like, for example, booking an air ticket uh, for a travel from, you know, here to Costa Rica with my family or whatever. You know, they're just all the images associated with it and the fun we're going to have, you know, just is, is, is a pleasant task. And then at the end of that cycle, I'll go take a break and come back and then I'll, I'll get back to the work. So uh, I'll you know, just try and see if um, that taking that mini break, doing that positive thing has re-energized me to coming back and doing this. And if everything else fails, what I've discovered is that if I just go to the gym mm-hmm. and I come back, I, I feel really good at the end of a gym workout. Uh, that's one of my most reliable mood boosters is, is to just go for a run or a workout. Okay. Uh, yeah. Never felt, never felt worse after workout. Actually, I should put it this way: that I've never not felt better after a workout yeah. than before a workout. Uh, it's it's uh, it's like remarkable. Hundred percent of the time, I go into the gym, I come out feeling good. Yeah. So smart. that's what I do. That's smart. Okay. So last question: What advice, encouragement, inspiration would you give? to the people listening who are either, uh, what I would say, stuck, you know, uh, on the threshold of beginning a project or maybe in some ways even worse, <laughs> they're in the belly of the snake, they're, they're in the tunnel and they, they haven't managed to get this over the finish line. What do you say to someone like that to help them not only keep going, but to, to get it done and get it out into the world and make the difference that they want to make? Mm-hmm. So I have different pieces of advice or suggestions for people who are yet to begin and people who are in the, in the belly, as you put it. Um, for people who are yet to begin, uh, what I've discovered oftentimes is that I've talked to a lot of people who want to write books and all that, uh, is that they have a fear of failure. And the fear of failure it comes from having unreasonably high expectations of what they want the book to be. You know, They're already imagining that the book needs to be a bestseller or you know, it's like a 
really a, a kind of one of its kind kind of a book that you know everybody um, reads it and is wowed by and so on. Uh, I think that you need to kind of just start, right? Just start with something and just put pen to paper. Uh, just sit down and and write one page. That's it. You know, don't kind of try to imagine the final product and say that this is how great it's going to be and so on. That puts extra pressure on you and you don't want that right now. Okay. You're, well, all you want to do is to see what are the set of things that you want to say and do they make sense? And, you know, is it, is it kind of in the ballpark of uh, what you intended to say? Is that being translated when you put um, these words on, on, on the paper? That's for people starting out for people in the, in the belly, you know, the, the dark night, so to speak. Right. <laughs> um, I would say that, uh, look, there are many different ways of motivating yourself in that, in that, you know, squishy middle part. Uh, often it's very easy to begin. You're enthusiastic. Um, and then when you come towards the end, again, I mean, it's easy to finish up often, but it's in the middle stages that you get really stuck. Okay. And I would say that uh, there are many different ways to motivate yourself in that stage. And one of the ways to motivate yourself is to basically tell yourself that, look, I'm just going to come in and every day from nine to 12, I'm going to do this. And Nothing else matters um, during this time that I have to focus on this book and that's it, okay? And uh, I can kind of party, I can do other things, I can give myself rewards, but 9 to 12, uh, I'm going to focus on this book, okay? Um, and and uh, that's, a, that's how it's going to be. And, uh, you know, even if I waste time there, uh, I feel like it's wasted time. Even if I don't feel like I'm progressing, I'm just going to do it. And I'm not going to evaluate how successful I am uh, for the next month. At the end of it, I'm going to look back and see what came out of it. Um, so um, that's one way to do it. Another way to, uh, to do it is to just ask for feedback from other people, okay? Just to contact your friends or well-wishers and tell them that, look, I mean, I'm in this in the stage, kind of uh, halfway done, and I don't know how good it is, and you know, I just need some advice and uh, need some suggestions on ways I could improve this. So you mind just giving it a read and telling me, you know, what works and what doesn't. And usually that does the trick because, you know, if they are, really well-wishers, they'll probably say something positive, but they'll also say something useful. And then those will give you new kind of beginnings and new sparks of inspiration for you to kind of restart the whole process. Yeah. Those are two things that you could do. What I love about that is that at some point, readers will engage with the material. So this concept of bringing them into the process a little earlier is a way of stimulating progress. That's, that's a great concept. Yeah. I'm sure I'll think of the six most brilliant questions as soon as we disconnect, but... But this was this was wonderful, and I really appreciate you making so much time to talk with me and to share your experience and, and your knowledge uh, with, with me and everybody who's listening. So thank you. No, absolutely, Brian. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep 
into every area of your life. Explore life's big questions. Create answers for yourself in community. Get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.